Welcome to the podcast. Hi, my name is Harsha from Ascendance, and you're listening to Cultivating the Masses. On this episode of Season 3, we have Harsha, who is one of the founders of Ascendance, a youth movement and a social enterprise that aims to help the younger generation better understand their strengths and passion to build their future careers. Join us as we explore her journey in cultivating the youth one step at a time. My name is Bradley Tipa Onia Barengan, and welcome to Cultivating the Masses. Welcome to the show, Harsha. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. You know, before we got you on the show, Our producers were telling me, hey, we got this Harsha, this very young entrepreneur who started everything at the age of 11. I was like, you know, I was kind of like shocked with everything, you know, like 11 years old, you're supposed to be mischievous, you're supposed to be naughty, you're supposed to be messing things around. But hearing someone who is 11 years old has already started her entrepreneurial journey is definitely something that I really would want to look into, you know. So before we get deep inside the topic of ascendance, I just want to know you more on a, I would say, on a personal level. How, what was your upbringing? How did you grow up? Was there anything very different compared to other kids that you had? Or it's just something you figure out along the way. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the show. After your introduction, I'm slightly nervous. I can't lie. So hopefully my story is not too boring for your audiences. And um, yeah, I think that there is no... Uh, magic secret. So yes, um, I began my entrepreneur journey when I was 11 years old. And um, back then, in a sense, there was nothing particularly special about me. So um, I come from a very normal family, um, uh, regular here in Malaysia. And I guess my mom was a single mother. She worked in a corporate job. And I think um, what really like set my journey apart was um, my mother herself. And she wanted to be a social entrepreneur when around that time. So I did not have any big dreams of starting Ascendance or doing anything big. But um, as a single mother, she took the decision that she wanted to do something different. She stepped out of her corporate job and she went from one event to another, one incubator to another, basically find a place that could guide her to build her own business in a way that would be meaningful and contribute back to the community. And she found this one social business incubator here in Malaysia called ET Ideas that basically develops individuals, um, develops entrepreneurs to step out of the system and solve world problems collectively and selflessly at the root cause. And in a nutshell, what they do is they help individuals discover what they love doing. And through building people before building the business, getting anyone in a sense to be able to start something in an area that they are passionate about and grow it to amazing heights. And they used to have these talk shows every week uh, where the founder or different entrepreneurs would come and share. And my mom used to go for them. And uh, she would just bring me along because there was no one to babysit me at home. So when I was there, in a sense, I think it just completely blew my mind because for the first time, you imagine being 11, you only know like the four walls of your classroom, your teachers, your friends. And then now I'm thrown into this environment where I meet something like over 30 different successful entrepreneurs, some of them who have hit the million mark, uh, many of them who have done so much for the community and um, all of them doing what they love doing and being successful in it. And that was a big shock to me because it, for me, it's like the triple threat. You do what you love, you at the same time, you make money and you also give back. So 
that kind of set the foundation for me and i think it was through conversations with these entrepreneurs through um right. learning more about them working on small projects with them that it actually set the stage for me to do what i do now right so i've watched a couple of videos where they did an interview with you right during my research uh and i i also found out that you did mention that you were a rather shy ex introverted person how did that like was it I I know you mentioned as well that it's a gradual process, right? But what are some of those process, those steps that made you become this person right now? From the way you speak, you are very I I I feel intimidated if I were to be honest. <laughs> but but yeah, how did that actually help in terms of the growth? I know you mentioned like you've met a lot of these entrepreneurs, but how do you actually get out of that mentality? You know, because like I guess it's also because you were really young and because when we're young our mind molds very quickly, right? But I just want to hear from you. What were some of the steps and process that you went through from being like an introverted shy person to this very outspoken and very, you know, intelligent if you might say it away. Yeah. You are too kind, definitely <laughs> too kind. I think that um I'm still a very shy introverted person, so I haven't really changed much, but I think like the few key points that has actually uh, made me who I am today is um I'd say it was three things. The first thing as you mentioned was environment. And it's not just meeting entrepreneurs because honestly as a kid that's rather intimidating to meet people who are outspoken and who actually uh, can present themselves well. But for me I think the environment was special in a way was because everyone there and this was very strange for me as a kid. Whenever I would go there everyone else was an adult. I was the youngest there at that point of time and um all of them treated me like any other adult. So they would have these big conversations about how business works or how this uh, or quantum physics or science or something and they'd genuinely listen to my opinion and they would genuinely want to know what I thought about it because that whole business incubator the whole detail is they had this this kind of like uh, saying that the young must lead. So they just had a lot of respect for anything a youngster would say. Right. Which for me at that point of time was so confusing because it's like as a kid you know you're normally told to to listen yeah. and like don't like maybe like when you're older you can have something meaningful to yeah. say but they were like no you are young so that means your ideas are the most fresh you've got like you you're like the latest processor and i was like really so that number one was like it it at least gave me the confidence to just say something at the very least so um i would say that was the first step and the second step in a sense to really break me out of my shell was um having a goal i remember that one of the things is even now i'm not the kind of person who by random would just have a conversation with someone i'm so grateful for food ordering apps because i don't have to call the pizza guy anymore right. but, um, <laughs> no i'm serious right, right. <laughs> but but for me it was like um having a goal really changed it because for me my goal is um ascendance for all of you who don't know ascendance is a nationwide international now youth movement that works with nearly 15000 teachers and students to help everyday students discover what they love doing and start their own careers while they're still in school through getting real world experiences and working with top CEOs and people in industries and when we started this in a sense um it was just an idea today we we work with almost every state different countries but when we began Um there was nobody who was like oh my god I want to support a sentence I want to know about you guys nobody knew who we are so and so as a kid who had this goal which I want to make this platform go global I was willing to do anything to achieve that goal which meant if I need to make cold calls I'll do it if it meant that I have to go and talk to strangers I'd do it simply because I was so focused on that goal and I was in an environment that prioritized kind of um taking the right words and actions to support the thoughts to support the goals you had in your mind. So it was those two things and I think the third thing would be 
having people tell you it's okay to be an introvert. I feel like many times people are like, oh, you're an introvert, you need to change and things like that. But no, the people around me were just like, oh, it's all right, you're an introvert, that's fine. But um, as long as you are just focused on your goals, your thoughts, words, actions are aligned to what you want, then that would work. So like there was one time I had to give a talk um, when I was 14, it was the first time I stepped on a stage and I was invited to the Global Social Business Summit in Philippines. And it was just so happened a spur of the moment thing where in the morning of one of the days, we were actually there as delegates, the organizer said, hey, do you mind presenting and sharing on the stage? And you can imagine at 14, I was like, no, it's okay, I'm fine. <laughs> but one of the things that for me, it was like, this is a conference which has delegates from across the world and they're all here looking at what's the latest social business idea. So for me, it's like at that point of time, without caring whether I was an introvert, without caring about all of those things, I was just focused on, okay, I need to do this to achieve my goal. If I take this step, it will get me a step closer to my goal. So having that complete focus and knowing that my words and my actions had power to achieve that goal actually just gave me the confidence in that moment. And that's what I do every day. You know, going back to that, before we talk into ascendance, right? Going back to that topic of like goal setting and all that, I watched one of your interviews as well, and you did mention about goal setting and the power of the subconscious mind. That is something that I'm really intrigued about. Like, I'm very interested to know about the whole idea of how your subconscious mind actually, you know, help you operate as a person, right? But for you, you know, I, I, while I was watching that interview, I was watching that talk, and you mentioned that you learn how to tap into the power of the subconscious mind. And I'm so amazed by the fact that at that age, you have such good control of your subconscious mind. You see, like, just to run you through a little bit about my history, when I was at that age, all I was thinking about was having fun and really not thinking about there's no, nothing ahead of me, you know? Like, I was just, okay, I'm just going to rock the world like, you know, everyone would. But you seem to have that ability to, I would say, really, uh, really, what do you call that? Observe yourself from that aspect, right? But what would you say was the turning point, the shift of that paradigm? What was it that triggered it, if you might say that way? Because at such young age, I still think that your brain is not capable of just doing that yet, but I could be wrong. You could tell me more about that, yeah. I think that there's no way I could understand it. And maybe I'll share a conversation with my mentor that I had. Um, one day I was just very, conf not very confused, but I was like, this is all pretty amazing. Like I've never met an environment like this. So I go up to the founder of this social business incubator and I t and ask him this. And um, I said, how did you create all of this? And he says, well, it's very simple. You just got to know two things. And the first thing he shared about was about quantum physics. How in essence, it showed that nothing is real and that reality keeps changing. All you have to do, he said, is figure out how to change it into the thing you want. And the second thing he shared was about Einstein's theory of relativity, how energy and matter are interchangeable. And he said the most powerful form of energy there is, is your thoughts. So all you have to do again is figure out how to turn that energy into the matter that you want. Mm. Amazing, yeah, right? Yeah, bloody amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> I was like, I want to yeah, know more and yeah. things like that. But to be honest, and I told this to my mentor at that point of time, I was like, I really don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> And so he was like, well, the only way you're actually going to understand this better than some of the scientists out there is if you apply it. And you apply it by setting a goal, focusing, and actually achieving that goal. So I was, I was intrigued. I was like, okay, setting a goal, I think I can do. You just set something. Okay, that makes sense. Achieving a goal doesn't seem too hard. So um, and he told me something else in terms of the subconscious mind. He said, your subconscious mind governs all of, almost all of your habit patterns. Your conscious mind is probably 2%. Your subconscious is like the 98 Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So if you want to like send out the right thoughts, send out the right vibrations, more than just thinking about it, you've got to make it a habit. You've got to make it part of you. And every single second, 50,000 cells are born and 50,000 cells die. 
So you've got to constantly keep that repetition in because it will get instilled in each and every single one of those cells. So I was like, all right, very intriguing. So I was like, okay, what, what do I do? Where do I start? With a goal, right? So the first goal I had was not to start any business, not to do anything out of the ordinary. I was an 11-year-old kid. So I looked around at my 11-year-old life and I saw, hmm, UPSR is coming up. And one of the things I was like, I saw actually was one of my seniors in that particular school. They got a scholarship after their UPSR to go to an international school. And they used to say like, oh, you should be like this kid. It opens up your mind to go there and so on. And I think that the, the most intriguing part was I was like, okay, I too want to learn about cultures, places around the world. So I said, I want to go and I want to get this scholarship to an international school as well. And um, that was the first goal I set. Very simple goal. But to be honest, I wasn't really like the outstanding scholarship winning kid. I was just a very average, like middle of the class, shy, quiet, no extracurricular activities. But I had a goal now. I went back to my mentor and I, I remember first I applied for a couple of things and I went to my mentor and I said, I got back these rejection letters or my mom said it's too expensive. I can't go. This person says I need to do this. And he looked at me and he said, oh, all right, well, so what's the matter? I said, the matter is it didn't work. You said if I focus on it, it will, like, it will appear, but it didn't happen. And he was like, it doesn't work like that. When I say focus on your goal, it means your thoughts, words and actions must be aligned to it. So in thoughts, yes, you're focused. But in words, you're here talking about all of the problems. And in actions, you're just complaining. So then he said, go back, focus, but align yourself, look for solutions. So in thoughts, I just kept seeing myself in this international school. I kept repeating that goal. In words, I went out there and I started having conversations with people in international schools, friends, teachers that I knew so that I get a sense of it. And in actions, I didn't know where to start. So every day I just came home and I sat down and I googled international schools and I just googled, googled, googled and I emailed in their teachers, principals, uh, make calls and things like that because I was just so focused on that goal. Right. And that goal was slowly becoming a part of me as I constantly repeated it. And from there, the next thing I knew, I started seeing opportunities around me. So I started focusing back on my results. Next thing I knew, I became a straight A scoring student. I started saying, hmm, my school is a pretty good netball team, for example. So I entered that. I ended up winning MSSS, MSSM level competitions, bringing back gold medals. I even started saying like, hmm, I like music. Maybe I could play the bass guitar. And I got highest grade in grade one for that year in the whole of Malaysia by Warok School. So all of these things started happening, these little, little things. And the next thing I knew, in a little over a year, I had changed into the kind of person who was now scholarship winning material and I received that scholarship worth 150,000 ringgit for my entire secondary school education at age 12 and at that moment I saw that I had literally in a sense changed the reality around me I had changed the people around me had changed and I had achieved this goal so I went back to my mentor and I said this works and he was like good but you don't really know how to explain it yet right and I was like not really so he said just keep doing this as you keep setting and achieving goals it becomes clearer so to answer it again to summarize there's no hard or fast route you just need to see, set a goal. And as you set the goal and you work towards it, you will understand the subconscious mind. It's not something as a kid, especially you can learn in theory. You have to learn it in practice. Right. You see, that sounds very similar to Simon Sinek's The Power of uh, uh, Find Your Why, if I'm not mistaken. Was that his uh, main book that he was selling? Is that the, the, you need to find your why in life in order for you to, you know, progress in life into being something, into manifest into something that you really want to see yourself. And I find it very amazing that, you know, you started off with just the thought in your head and the actions uh, also supported those thoughts. And now you have slowly manifested into this thing, you know, it's just started from the idea of it. And then you start working on it. And now you're here, slowly becoming the person you really want to become. And I find that it's a bloody amazing thing to do, if I were to be honest. Yeah. Well, okay, moving on, you know, 
we saw your portfolio and we noticed the variety titles of uh, singer, songwriter, head of marketing, website developer, book writer. I mean, this is one of your, I believe, your key skills as well is that you juggle so many things at once. How do you do that? Because I'm guilty over here, all right? I'll be honest with you, you know, I've tried juggling maybe four things at max and I'll completely burn out. And how do you do it? Can you at least give like a brief explanation of how do you actually see it? How do you process it? And how do you actually execute on those things? Uh, again, you're being way too nice to me <laughs> because I feel like, 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 I feel like I'm just a very normal person and, I, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but like for me, I think like, the fortunate thing for me is I started young. So when I started, I was just like my whole, I'm busy with school. There's absolutely nothing else that can be put into my timetable other than school and TV. That was like my life. So when I started off like working on different projects, I used to, I had this rule where I'd spend five minutes a day on it. So I was just like, I'll spend five minutes a day. I can spare five minutes. And slowly as I started doing that consistently, five minutes became 10, 10 became 20. And the next thing I knew, um, I could do something else. So I started, that's how I started when I was learning music, when I started playing the bass guitar. It's how I started working on ascendance things. And from there, it just started growing and growing and it naturally kind of fit into my schedule. So today I'm actually um, the chief marketing officer and co-founder of Ascendance, the nationwide youth movement I mentioned earlier that works with thousands of students. I'm also the CEO and founder of StartMyName.com. We are a website and app development company that does websites for individuals, families and small businesses. And we have over 400 clients in four continents. And I'm also a student. So I actually go to the University of Pennsylvania. I do my bachelor's degree there. They're an Ivy League university in the United States. And I also have the good fortune of sharing Ascendance's methodology on TEDx talks and platforms like this, amazing podcasts like this, so that others can replicate this in their own life. And I manage it now. It's not like everything is smooth sailing. I started young and then it worked out. No, there's times which I have lots of things to do and I'm very stressed out. But I think it always goes back to looking for solutions for me in a sense. So for example, when I have a lot of things to do, I leverage on my team. I have an amazing team. We have students all across Malaysia, over I think 30 to 50 students in Malaysia that actually handle different things. So I keep working with them. I keep making sure that other people can do what I do better than me in a sense so that slowly I can move on to the next phase. So when we started Ascendance, there was four of us, but there wasn't really much work to do, so that was fine. But as we started growing today, when we work with thousands of kids, we can no longer operate at that same level. So as we've grown, we make sure that we build our team. And as much as we can, we make sure that we do our best so that our team can grow, so that they can do better, they have the right skills, they can handle things. So today, as much as I am part of Ascendance's core team, we also have another 18-year-old who used to be our student who today works with ministry departments across Malaysia. We have um, another student who is um, uh, 16 who manages our social media, leads a team of other youngsters. So because I've learned to, in a way, uh, work with others and delegate, that's what's actually made me a bit more stable. And when I don't know how to do that, I go back to my mentors and I'd be like, oh, can you help me manage my time? And that kind of system that we've created where I help others, others help me, that has enabled me to reach this somewhat level of stability that I am at now. You know, I was when I was doing my research, I was going through uh, the kind of things that you guys have done in Ascendance, right? And I, I find it so amazing that you guys managed to pull those things off at such a young age, you know? And it got me thinking because my journey as a young kid wasn't very, I would say, it was one of the worst, if I were to be honest. You know, I got suspended five times at school and I've been always been upfront about that. And I look at the way you guys handled it and I'm just thinking like, wow, these people are doing such amazing things. And how was this not what they're doing in schools that I, the one I studied in, also multiple people studied in? And I just want to, perhaps I would say, challenge your thoughts on how 
the idea of traditional schools and the way you are doing things, what could traditional schools, if you might say the way, do differently in order to, you know, give the same environment and uh, motivation like the way you guys are doing it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I I've got to be honest. One of the reasons why Ascendant started in the beginning was because um. We started because I was like, for example, in ETIDS, I got this scholarship and I looked around and I saw other youngsters who were doing the same thing. So my other founders are as cool, if not cooler than me. So there's like um, Hira, who's actually, uh, she was 14 when we started Ascendance, wanted to be a singer. Today, she's actually an international singer, songwriter and performer. She tours across the world. She has songs that play in its radio stations worldwide. And she actually has a career as a performer, which is amazing. And it's kind of unheard of in Malaysia. We have like Sanet, who's a filmmaker. I think he started his film documentary series at 19 years old. And today he's actually releasing his second episode, I think next week uh, in his documentary series. So it's like, there were many of us and we looked around and we said, what made us special? And we said that we aren't that bright by ourselves, but <laughs> because we had this environment and this right. platform, mm. we were able to thrive. And we asked ourselves that same question. Why don't they teach this? In, why, like, shouldn't this be what we learn about in classrooms? And we said, well, we can't change the system we can't go and change, um, like, we can't go and say, hey, you should listen to kids, but we can do something about it. So we said, if they don't want to come to us, we'll go to them. And that's when we formed Descendants. And from there, we started um, by doing programs in tuition centers, homeschooling centers. And eventually, as the results of the students that started growing spread, we were invited even by the ministry to actually sit down with them and have chats with them, and eventually been given approval to um, run programs, first in Selangor, but today in all across the schools. And one of the things that I've realized is traditional schools are, um, are staffed by amazing teachers who really care about their students. As a kid, you don't see your teachers actually care about you. But as you actually work with them, you see that, oh my God, you care about the last class students more than in a way, like you actually think, spend sleepless nights with, like worrying about them. It's just that sometimes for us, what we bring to the table is that peer-to-peer -peer relationship. So all of our trainers, our students, they're kids themselves who have gone on, had small successes, so they can just connect to other youngsters their age. And that's the same thing which today when we bring to the schools, to the people we work with, instead of saying we, we need to replace traditional schools, we say, no, let us supplement what you guys are doing. Let us like, do our part to engage youngsters in it so that they can later go back to these traditional schools and thrive and do the best. I saw that when I went to an international school, I expected everyone to stop complaining and say like, oh my God, we've got games and activities in our classes now. This is so much fun. And it was for many of us. But there were still those kids who were like, oh, I don't like this. Or, oh, I don't want to do this. Or, oh, I'm bored and things like that. And it made me realize that you could change the school environment as much as you want. But if you don't change the kid, nothing's going to happen either. So today what we do is we work hand in hand with a lot of these teachers, a lot of these schools, district departments. And we tailor make our programs or we tailor make our, uh, the work that we do according to the feedback of the youngsters themselves. Right. So youngsters get to decide what they want to learn. They get to decide how it's delivered. So it ends up being fun, full of sketches, activities, practicals. And because of that, it engages those normally disengaged students who don't always get their straight A's or are often be left behind or overlooked in a sense. And once they have a platform which they feel they belong, they actually start learning these skills with us from thinking to ability to actually put things together, which eventually spills over, makes them more responsible, confident, disciplined. And naturally, those habit patterns are also applied in their school life. So everything grows together in a way. Yeah, that is really amazing to hear that, you know, it's kind of like, instead of giving what we, what we think they need, is that we ask them what they need and provide them with that, you know? And I feel like that's something that a lot of, I would say, 
educational system are missing out on. And I like the idea that you are not trying to replace it entirely, but rather you're just trying to supplement some of the help, like you mentioned, right? You want to supplement the power and perhaps your experiences on how to deal with these younger kids. And gotta say, I really love what you guys are doing. I, I wish I grew up in this generation <laughs> instead and not mine in the past. But yeah, uh, now that you've pretty much explained what Ascendance is about, right? I, I'm pretty interested. How did the name Ascendance came about and what was the thought process behind it? Yeah. Um, ascendance, going up. Get right. it? Like ascending. Mm. So th- that was the original name. Basically, we wanted to help raise people's consciousness, raise their awareness about themselves, about the world around them, and get them to live better lives, happier, healthier, better at education, but also lives where they can pursue their passion, do what they love, and be successful. Right. Was there any, like, you know, before you guys decided to go with the name Ascendance, was there any, like, names that you guys might have thought? Yes. If you could give us some of the names that you guys actually went through, that'll be cool. So this is like a secret exclusive fact for you, which, which is actually not much of a secret. If you ask me, I, I, I've probably said this before, but like, I actually wasn't one of the original, original founding members of Ascendance. So when Ascendance first formed as a team before there was a company and things like that, I was actually not part of it. So it was an ET Ideas. They called for like this team of youngsters and my friends went for it. And I was like, I've got projects to work on. I've got re- I'm already busy. So like, sorry, I'm, I don't want to be part of Ascendance. What is Ascendance? So they actually came up with the name, the logo and things like that while I was like steaming at the sidelines like, oh man, I should have joined in a sense. <laughs> so eventually I got my chance to be part of Ascendance and I haven't let go yet. But um, there were so many things that they had in mind. They wanted to call it Beam. If you ask Madra, who is one of our co-founders, she will still say that's the best name and we say, no, that's terrible. <laughs> so it's like there, there were so many and every time we name something new, we go through the same problem and we end up recycling all those names that we tried before. So Madra is still trying to make Beam happen, which it hasn't. But we have used so many other things, in a way. Okay, uh, you know, you and the team in Ascendance, you guys are constantly pushing the, I would say, pushing everything forward, you know. You guys are even try, trying to, I would say, also I watched one of your interview, you, when you were 14 to 15 years old, and you said you wanted to apply for a position in a company, right? And they were rejecting you most of the time because you were such a young kid, right? And until that one email that actually got that response, I like the idea of how you're pushing the boundaries right here. You know, it's like everything's just limitless. Like maybe you could share with us some of your thoughts on how do you, you know, actually push that stereotype away and like, hey, give me this chance. I really want to work on it and all that. Yeah, just share it with us a little bit of that experience. Um, I think it's just um, in a good way, ignorance of what the boundaries are. Because like, literally, like if you like, when, when I started at 11, 12, 13, I had no concept of anything. So there was one time I remembered I did this and like, my mom was so weirded out. It was on a Sunday. It was like one of the public holidays. And I was calling up the CEOs, uh, like a few like name cards I had. I called up the CEOs and I started setting these meetings and things like that. And my mom was like, it's a Sunday. How can you call people <laughs> on a Sunday? And like, how can you set meetings on a Sunday? And I was like, oh, I cannot. Uh, Monday to Friday, I got school. So I need to set it on a Sunday. Like, I'm not, I don't have time. <laughs> so, so it's like small things like that. Like why we work with the ministry so fast is in a way, I think, because we didn't know that it would take time to work with the ministry. So we just kept calling them, showing up. Like when we submitted like the letters of approval and things like that, we just keep calling them or like showing up in Putrajaya being like, oh, hi, is the letter ready? No, okay, I'll go makan and come. 
So I think we just tortured everyone around us so much that they were like, okay, fine, do what you want. And in terms of like um, pushing boundaries, of course, it's not easy. Like the first few time when we said, okay, let's do programs in schools, uh, tuition centers, wherever we can go. We literally just Google the list of like tuition centers and call one by one. So like tuition centers in Slango, call, 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 call. Because like how else would you know? We're kids, we Google everything. And the first call that I made, I remember I called this tuition center owner. And I was like, oh, hi, I'm Harsha. This is the program. It's amazing. It's youth by youth. And I was like, oh, she's going to love this. And for the next half an hour, she scolds me like nobody's business. <laughs> and she says, no, really. And she says something I'll never forget. She said, I've been running this tuition center for 20 years. You are 13 years old. What can you teach my students that I can't? And then she slams the phone down. And again, this is why I don't want to call the pizza guy anymore. This is where like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, I don't want to make any more calls. But one of the things that, that I think I just had very kind mentors who just when I ignored boundaries, they would also ignore boundaries. So they'd just be like, oh yeah, yeah, some people are just like that. But it's like for every hundred calls you make, maybe one of them will, like maybe yeah. 10 of them will say yes. Maybe one of them will say yes. So for me, when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's good. Because that means no matter what I say, even if I talk gibberish, as long as I make those hundred calls, by law of probability, one has to right, say yes. Right. But I was like, I'll just make the calls then. So it was all of these small things that I feel like because I had no sensor or no filter of like what was actually like expected that I was just not afraid to go and try things mm. out. You know, I find it very interesting the way you said it, like out of 100 calls, you wanna, uh, you're, you're bound to get one out of all the 100 calls, right? But let's say if you were to, I, would, I just want to know how you would educate the fact that because when you make 100 calls and 99 of them would reject and slam you and say, no, I don't want to talk to you, right? And only one, but how do you actually teach people about how to deal with that? I would say the dirty part of it, you know what I mean? Like the part where the rejection happens, people uh, bashed you, people uh, just shaming you and all that. How do you actually educate that to people to make them understand that, hey, it's part of the process, completely normal, because not a lot of people like going through that, you know? Yeah. A lot of people just like to see the beautiful side of life without actually knowing that the dirt actually plays an equal part to life, you know? And how would you communicate that to people? I remember when I was teaching like the youngsters, in a, not youngsters, the new people in Ascendance who are all probably between 10 to 15, 10 to 18 years old, uh, how to make calls. And um, I remember what, what I did in a sense. And I think this is the only way you actually teach is you lead by example. So what I did is I just made these calls one by one on speaker with all of them there watching. And we'd make these calls together. So when you do it on speaker and you're calling up random companies, some of them would be like, immediately gives me an appointment and everyone goes like, whoa, Harsha is so cool. Some of them would just be like, oh, okay, send email. I'd be like, okay, send email. So it's like, I, I just went through like a day making calls with them. I think I made like 20 calls in like a span of an hour and I can I'll do that for like several sessions with them. Um, did all of them go out there and become like amazing corporate entrepreneurs who like today make million dollars from their cold calls? Not all, but a lot of them after that didn't mind picking up the phone. So like now for even the smallest things I started observing after that is if they see like they, they're reading a brochure for something to do with their business, they're like, oh, okay, I need more details. So straight away, just pick up and call, which is so hard to get Gen Zs to do. Mm. Or whenever they need have like some kind of like thing, they need to get information. Or today when a lot of them actually call schools, like they call ministry, like PPD departments to actually bring in schools or like send in letters to JPN for our programs. They actually just don't mind picking up the phone and doing it or when they call corporate partners. So it's like the skills are built because they do it, we get them to do it, but I show them through my own demeanor, through my own thoughts, words and actions, how it's actually done. So when someone rejects me and I'm on speaker with them, 
I don't go, oh my god, my life is over. I just yeah. go like, ah, happens. So when they see me do that, the next time when that happens to them, they just go like, oh, it happens. So they mimic what I do in a way. Right. And I think that that's the same when, when you teach anything. You need to make sure that you are doing it right and you will be followed and replicated by those you teach. You know, hearing you've been doing all of this for, I would say, 10 to 11 years, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Six to seven. Six, oh, yeah. Sorry, six to seven years. What the hell am I talking about right now? But yeah, six to seven years, right? And, you know, you seem to be like you constantly have been up in your game, you know? You're stepping up your game, you're constantly learning while at the same time doing the things that you've been doing. But then again, I really want to grow as well. Like, I just want to know, like, where does all this drive comes from? You, you said that you have a goal, right? But is that goal a very vague thing? But, or is it something that is really precise that you're really looking into? Because we're talking about you doing singing, you know, songwriting, and now web development for your startmyname.com, right? Where did you find the passion for all this side things if you might say that way okay i'll answer both questions so like the first part about having a very specific goal yes we have a very specific goal for a sentence which we do not disclose out as much but we have other targets that we like certain like plans which we share with like everyone so we get everyone's focused in so it's not our big goal but for example now we're running this whole one million teens vision which is what we want to achieve in the next five years so we want to actually achieve this one million teens. So we want each of these one million teens to be able to know them, talk to them, inspire them, and actually have like a tangible team. It's not something that we want out there in the open. So get them on a platform where they have like recurring information that they can absorb in. So when you have that five-year plan, you break it down for us in a sense in a year. So this year, for example, we want to impact 50,000 students. And that is between our last conference in May and our next conference in September, which is 69 or 65 days from now exactly. So in that case, it's kind of hard not to be driven because I'm just like, the days are passing. I have a target to hit. I have to raise 5 million by September. Oh my God. So it's like all of these things. Yes, it's stressful, but it also helps on both ends that number one, we have youngsters set our targets. So every time we end one conference or one thing, we'll have some genius to be like, next year, we're going to do 1,000 or next year, we're going to do 5,000. And then we just have to listen to them and do it. So that's the youngster part. But we also have amazing mentors who have hit million-dollar businesses, who have done phenomenal things. So they have that experience, in a sense, to make these goals that we set a reality. So we just have got balance between it and listen to that. And because I have this one goal for ascendance, every other thing in my life is kind of like part of it. So like, for example, in a sense, um, like Start My Name. Why the, the story to how we started Start My Name is a weird one, because it actually started when I finished my SPM, uh, IGCC actually, and I finished with um, 8A stars, straight A's, all that kind of stuff. But I had that same problem that every kid has. What do I do now? Like, my, my life is meaningless without school. So I go and, and I have this chat with my mentor and I ask him this. And he asks me back, what is it you want to do? What does your heart want to do? And without skipping a beat, I say, well, what I really want to do is bring what we do here in Ascendance in Malaysia all across the world. And at that time, Ascendance had just, we have been, just become like a full nationwide youth movement. We received the Diana Award in 2019 yeah. for our social action and humanitarian work. And it was the first time that we were recognized overseas. And he said, okay, if you want to actually go out there and um, bring this worldwide, you've got to learn from the best business owners, the best lecturers, the best universities on how to do that. 
and very inspiring again but at the same time i answered back how am i going to do that i just finished my igcse i have no a levels no foundation no experience no this no that no that what, what am i going to do and again he told me set your goal you want to do this international thing right you want to bring it worldwide and work backwards from there maybe you want to write into these universities maybe you want to write into some businesses talk to different people but keep repeating that goal and before you know it it will manifest itself mm. So that's when I wrote into the bunch of these universities and to my surprise the University of Pennsylvania actually replied and they said we have a distance learning program that's perfect for you it's for working adults so you do it half on campus half anywhere across the world at your own convenience in a sense and it's a bachelor's degree program so your classmates will be students between the age of 15 to 50 years old many of them top executives company owners business owners or even musicians artists athletes from different parts of the world yeah So with this degree on one side I've got this opportunity to learn from the best lecturers of their fields and from business owners those experiences that I need to actually bring this worldwide. And from there the next thing that like I enrolled I was excited but the next thing I had to look at is how do I pay for an Ivy League education? I mean like that's expensive. Yeah. Like. So of course then after that I went back to my mentor and I said maybe I should get a scholarship maybe I should do that maybe I should do this. And he said of course you can with your kind of grades anyone would give you a scholarship. But you shouldn't apply. And I was like, "What? Why?" And he said, "Well, you see, scholarships are for those people who do phenomenally, have like they who want to pursue their further education, who have amazing results, but lack the financial means. Mm. Much like you were when you first started. But over the years, you've gained the skills, the resources to actually go out there and earn the money you need to pay for this. So if you go and take all of those scholarships, what's going to happen to those people who actually need it? So that's when I was like, "All right." And we just looked back at the things I used to do for fun. One of the projects previously I'd worked on um, when I was just interning somewhere was to do websites, so to kind of do these fast, simple websites in a sense. And we thought maybe we convert that into a business. So we converted it into startmyname.com. That today now is going to being a full-fledged uh, digital services provider. And that conversion happened all because of that goal of a sentence. So if I can sustain myself with a business with some income and things like that. pay for an education that will help me achieve a sentence as goals and at the same time have enough to pay for lunch and dinner then i can just focus my efforts fully on a sentence i don't have to worry about myself in a way you know with all that being said right i hear a lot of these uh word mentor being thrown inside while you were talking right if someone were to be like really young and they're really trying to achieve something but they don't know how and where to get them and you obviously would tell them get a mentor and all of that right But what was the process like of getting a mentor? How did you actually get a mentor and how do you know because I know there's this thing called the compatibility between your mentor and yourself. There are times where your mentor don't really, you know, help you out in growing with the way you are. But how do you find your mentor and how would you actually advise someone to find a good mentor and also, you know, use that to its fullest capabilities? I'll tell you something that my mentor told me that I'll never forget when he was uh, he was giving a talk and he said someone asked him this how do you find a mentor and I thought it was so hilarious I shared every time someone asked me he said before you find a mentor do as much research as you can find out every single thing about them go out there and ask as many questions about their happiness their health make sure that they're someone who's not just successful monetary wise but they balance everything else in their life make sure that they're the kind of person who you want to be like their characters you agree with the way they run their business They, they're ethical and find out as much as this information dig 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 ask ask us but once you decide that this person is the person i want to learn from listen to what they say because they will have experience that will ask them to make decisions or things that with your lack of experience you might not be able to see 
And I think that I was very fortunate that it's not like I showed up at a talk show one day and then boom, you are my mentor now. Yay, I'll follow you around. It was really, I went, I think it was for about six months I used to go for this talk show. I used to listen to this founder, Victor Idea, share his experiences on different topics, on different things. I asked him so many questions. I think I drove him absolutely mad. And it was from there that really, I think after a while, I realized that, okay, this is someone I want to learn from. And at the same time, from his point of view, you see that one little girl show up for six months consistently for something. You know that she's serious. You know that, okay, this kid like, actually wants to do something in a way. So then he doesn't mind spending the time. Because the people you want to mentor you, you, you'd want someone successful to mentor you. But at the same time, people who are successful are not just going to mentor everyone. Even at Ascendance, we work with anyone. But anyone who's committed, anyone who shows that they want this in a sense. So that's why we actually formed Ascendance, to bring all of this mentorship out there to everyday students. So that they don't have to go through that same process of showing up for different events for six months until someone takes notice in a way. But that's how it worked for me. And today with the sentence, we try to simplify that process so that as long as you're committed, number one, you ask, you're willing to go and find out, you show interest, naturally you will attract the people to actually mentor you and guide you to achieve your goals. Remember when the student is ready, the master will appear kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I just can't stop thinking about like how amazing the things that you guys are doing. Even like when I was doing the research, I found out that, you know, you, you guys are helping a lot of students that, you know, you yourself came from a shy, introverted person and into becoming this person who you are. And you also have, I would say, students who actually came from being a very shy person into being a very, you know, creative person and all of that, into being very outspoken. And I like how you guys are providing that platform as well. It's something really amazing. And, you know, I wish to see more of that in modern and future schools, like, you know. Right, you know. Going back to the topic that I was talking about, 2020, right? Uh, you know, in every single guest that I've invited, because most of them are business owners and most of them are, you know, entrepreneurs. And 2020 definitely has been taking a toll on a lot of business owners, right? And I think a lot of people are affected by it. And at this stage, I think my podcast should just be all about 2020. <laughs> but yeah, I just want to know how did that affect the Ascendance and any other business that you're running? How... Did it take a toll? Because right now, from what I'm hearing as well, that you guys have definitely moved on the digital side of stuff a lot more. But did it actually took a toll on the way you guys run your program and all of that? I think 2020 changed everything. I mean, we've all been going wawasan duplo duplo, and then now we're just like, wow. Yeah, tell me I about it. know, like, like that year, we just jumped straight into <laughs> like the virtual world. We're leaving everything behind. It's like, wow. Okay, but anyway... I think in 2019, just to set up the scene in a sense, Ascendance really started growing. I mentioned we won the Diana Award, but we also mm. really started, um, we're very physical based. We do experiential learning. So we are really big on getting kids to actually go there physically. If you want to be a YouTuber, go to an actual production studio, hold a camera, like do your own short film, use all this high tech equipment and actually produce something, market it, learn how to like throw an event for it. So we really are big on taking kids through the whole process. And we were doing these programs, um, physically on the ground in different, different schools. We were working with hundreds of kids. In September 2019, we had our first New Age Channel conference for 140 students. By December 2019, we had a conference for 420 students. So we tripled in the sense in three months. Wow. So you can imagine in 2020, you're like, this is the year we're going to go big. We're going to reach thousands of kids. We're going to make changes. And then the pandemic hits. And then it's like we, like, we used to do conference. We'd have like 500 people in a room. Now it's like five of us can't be in the same room in yeah. a sense. 
So it was like for the first week of the MCU, I remember all of us sat at home and we were looking at each other. And we had just launched our programs the week before. Literally, we were in schools on the ground. And then now we're all at home and we're looking at each other and we're just like, oh, what do we do now? Right. So at first, of course, we were like, hmm. We took us a week to kind of like recalibrate our brains. But the next thing we said, okay, what can we do? Our job is a youth movement. We can't just tell people, like especially students, sorry, we're taking a break. They are working on things. They're actually youngsters who are becoming young entrepreneurs. They are young who are like working towards their goals so we said okay what's the first thing we can start off with so we used to have these base camp sessions every sunday physically at a space where they just come and share and pitch their ideas and work on things together and we replicated that online in the form of a web series so we started our say what with the sentence web series um it was an hour a week basically they listened to the like what actually is going wrong and going right right now how are kids actually feeling at home and discussing those topics like as they were coming in so we take in a different topic um, every week, open up like a free session, have a little talk show and give them little things they can do throughout the week that keeps them engaged, keeps them entertained, keeps them focused in a sense. So we started that web series and in the first week in a way, as I said, we just sat down and called back all of the students that we'd worked with, the parents, the teachers, asked them how they were feeling, get them online. And that first session we launched with over 100 students in the audience and it's just been growing since then. So the, when we started looking at it, we said, okay, this works. It's not completely horrible. We've got some hope left. So the web series launched and we started looking at the other programs we had. How do we bring them online? How do we adapt them online? But because, again, we were very, like our whole modus operandi is listening to what youngsters want, right? So we would always hear they're saying like, oh, I can't sit in front of my laptop for so long. Online classes, I'd rather go back to school, which you would have never heard a kid yeah. say in 2019. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm just saying like... Like, but yeah, but anyway, it's like we, we were hearing all of these things and we say, like, okay, that means what we do is we need to do something different. So instead of just taking like our day, like our full day programs and straight away switching them online, get them to sit in front of Zoom, we, said, we started looking at how can we rework the very nature of our programs so that it's more adaptable for this setting. So I look back at my online classes. I mean, I felt a bit cheated. I was supposed to start online classes in March and then everyone started online classes in March. So mm-hmm. I was like, I was less special. But my, like, because like, my course was particularly like, adapted for online learning, I started noticing things like they wouldn't have like, days of lectures and things like that. They probably have like, um, one or two live classes, which is an hour each. And then the rest of it, like, you actually have to do physical things. You have to go and observe something in your own life or do something like build something in your house or write your own like, thoughts down. So we started like, kind of like, implementing that very experiential reflective model in our program so we cut down our program sizes into maybe an hour like two hours on different models throughout the week so we have one series like half an hour on financial literacy one hour on meeting top execs every week another hour on like doing those base camp sessions and we have all of these different kind of models that we embed throughout the week and in between we actually get them to work on projects get them to work on things no matter where they are around so, for example, if we're having an event with um, Nicole and David, and this actually happened, we had an right, event with right. Nicole and David. So, what we did is we were like, okay, hello, nine-year-old who said you want to be a video editor or YouTuber. Why don't you make a video? Why don't you, we give you any resource that you may need, like some software or whatever it is, but you're in charge. You even have your own team. So, we get this nine-year-old to go do the research, work on things, break it, make the video, play it in front of a thousand people. We start working with different, different youngsters on projects like this to organize events, or work with ministry departments actually go out there and um, have their own businesses, grow the things that they were doing. And it was amazing for us because we started seeing that as we started getting the youngsters more involved in actually running the events, they started growing by leaps and bounds, even if it was just the simplest projects that we had. 
And because of that, because we kept listening to the youngsters, getting them involved, getting them to work on their ideas, we created this whole upwards movement of seeing this growth. We started having hundreds of students for each and every single program that we have. And by December 2020, we actually managed to have our New Age Learner virtual conference this time for 1,200 students in seven different countries with right. 400 schools and communities involved. And it was all fully done by kids aged 8 to 25. Everything, including going out there, meeting corporate partners, getting in funding, working with ministries, getting the participants. And the best part is they didn't stop after that. They just kept going. So much so that six months after that, in May, a couple of weeks ago, they actually managed to have the next New Age Learner National Level Conference for this year for about 6,900 students with a total audience of 30,000 views from different parts of teachers, parents and all run by kids. So because we did that in a sense and we just implemented this model that we've always had, we actually managed to go online fast, make it effective. Don't just copy and paste and hope that the pandemic is over. Look at this as an opportunity that if nature is giving us the situation, it means that it's time to take the jump to the next level. Right. And because we did that, we now have global partners. We work with people all around the world and we actually work with 14 different states in Malaysia to actually engage youngsters which we'd have never been able to do physical programs right. for as consistently. So on the flip side, on Start My Name side, we're a business. So, and we do personal websites for individuals. So if you want like actuallyharsha.com or if you want a blog for your family, you think your kids are going to be famous so, so you book their domain name in advance before it's taken by someone else. Right. So we do websites like that. And when the pandemic hit, it was suddenly, we were just starting to grow. We were just starting to pick up. And then now everyone is very cautious about spending their money. Everyone right. doesn't really want to go online. So from my point of view, I just started looking at what can I do about it? What's, what's the solution? And I just started going through Facebook, which is a very normal thing to do. It's not like anything special. Everyone was on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook skyrocketed during the pandemic. Right. And as I started looking, I started seeing that, yes, many businesses were closing down. People were more reserved their money. But there was new things that were happening too. I'm sure all of us know at least one or two people who started selling nasi lemak or biryani or some mihun or something. Yep, the yep, so yep. Like, oh, okay, we've got these little micro enterprises coming. Would they need a website? So I started contacting these people. Again, when I'm in doubt, go back to the masses. So I just right. went every single day messaging these hundreds of people, asking them, hey, do you want to get a website? Hey, I heard you're doing this. Oh, lovely brownies. So like, do you want like a website? And I just started doing that. I started looking who else would need a website. Could I get trainers who couldn't do programs to have a blog or a video section or something on their website? Could I go and approach different companies? And it was because of that that we really started um, speeding up in a sense. So from having a little dip period, we started seeing spikes of clients. And there were months where we even saw a 100% increase of clients from the previous wow. months. So all of that kind of accumulated. It wasn't all like sunshines and roses. All of that accumulated in last year, July. In a sense, it was my 18th birthday. And because of that spike in clients, which is a really good thing to have, But I also had a little of a problem because nobody told me you have to run your businesses, your business differently when you have 200 clients compared to when you have 20 clients. Right. And suddenly now my team and I were working day and night. We were like, oh my God, how do we manage all of this? We had calls after calls, meetings after meetings. I tried to take a week off for my birthday. That didn't happen. I ended up having a Zoom call in the car, in the house, in the hotel, wherever I went, I was just at work in a sense. And I was very stressed out. I had assignments, things due. And at that point of time, one client called me up and three days ago, they said, this was amazing. Thank you. You did exactly what we wanted. And three days later on my birthday, they argued with a different service provider and came back and said, this is not what we want. I don't want this. I don't want that and things like that. And they just scolded me for an hour. And at that point of time, I was like, all right, thanks. All right. Okay, bye. 
and I just couldn't stand it. And I started crying and crying and crying and I just couldn't stop. So I call up my mentor and I tell him, I thought you said this would be easy. I thought you said like, like I'd be a good entrepreneur. But if you told me it'd be like this, I wouldn't have been an entrepreneur then. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it's too much. And then after that, he was like, mm, I think he finds me very amusing from time to time. He's like, yeah. breathe, calm down. And he said, you know, right, if this is happening, that means there's a lesson in it for you. Right. Which is nice in hindsight. But at that point, I was like, lesson? There's no lesson in this. This person's being unreasonable. <laughs> and he's like, no, breathe, calm down. You need to calm down. And he said, find a way to calm down. He said, go and talk to someone or write a song or write a blog, do something. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll write a blog. Yep. So as I was writing the blog, I started seeing the lesson in that situation. I was like, okay, fine, there's a lesson in it. Then I was like, oh, there's something else that happened last week. So I wrote about that situation. And the next thing I know, I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I had written for one week straight. And wow. I had written enough to actually publish a book called The Makings of a Teenage Entrepreneur. Whoa. Which is actually when I wrote my book. And I took this back to a sentence and I said, is this any good? And they were like, of course, it's so nice. You've you put down your seven years of experience into a book. Yeah. But the only feedback they had is, okay, so someone reads this um, and they want to be an entrepreneur. What do they do? And I was like, oh, good point. Because of that book, we actually managed to consolidate all of the events that we had um, brought ad hoc online into a single platform called the teenageentrepreneur.com that we today package along with the book. So this teenageentrepreneur.com has like 50 over live events, workshops by teenage entrepreneurs from across the world, top executives, directors in companies like Facebook, Amazon, and so on, to even people like me sharing my experiences and things that I do. But that idea wouldn't have come about had I had not gone through the stress, had I had not gone through listening to people yep, with exactly. descendants, had I have not gone through all those different experiences. So that pandemic was both, a, it still is in a sense, a complete roller coaster of ups and downs and goods and bads. 100%, but yeah. at each step, I think it brings me to the next level and it brings what I do to the best level, which I guess is all that's important, right? I think it's all about like the perspective that you're looking at it as well, right? You see, a lot of people, when the pandemic happened, everyone was just uh, stifled in fear. You know, everyone was just constantly thinking about, oh, how do I, you know, move forward in my life? How do I actually get to the next level? But they completely missed out on the, the kind of new opportunities that we have in this modern world, right? You have your internet, you have information everywhere. You can basically do things anywhere, anyhow you want it to be, you know? But yeah, you know, you did mention earlier about going through the tremendous amount of stress of handling things during the pandemic and all that. I just want to know, like, you know, all of that you mentioned, you were talking about how the students were dealing with it and you guys come up with multiple programs to ensure that they're constantly engaging in their uh, journey and all that. But as for the team, how did the team in Ascendance actually cope with this not only stress from work, but also having to deal with the stress that the students are talking about, you know? So there must be piling up. And how do you guys actually, okay, we gotta get, excuse my language, we gotta get our shit together and help these people out, you know what I mean? But how do you, yeah, basically th that's it. My question is, how do you deal with your own mental health when you are currently dealing with these students as well? I think it's just being aware that everyone is going through something. So we had members of our team who packed up and just like moved into a new place nearer to the rest of us during the pandemic because we didn't know how long it would be. So they thought maybe I'll just live somewhere for two weeks. And then it's been a year and a half and they still think it's here now. <laughs> and no, I'm serious. And it's like, Interesting. And, and remember our team is quite young. So you're talking about people in their very early 20s, 21, 18, 19. So they actually take these big risks 
to actually go out there and try things out. That's good. And I think that the good thing about us is we have it. It wasn't just us. We had an ecosystem of people that we know would support us, and that's what I think kept us going. So, I think like in terms of ET ideas, they've been like as strong as ever during the last one and a half years. I mean, of course, in the beginning, everyone was like, "We can't meet anymore. We can't have talks. We can't have activities. We can't do anything together." And we used to do so much, like everything from having a monthly sports outing or football game to like meeting every week to get work done. So like not have, being able to meet was taking a toll on everyone. But I think it was just the the ability to recognize that everyone was going through that and having compassion when you work with people and kind of like keeping an eye out for others. So when I was going through distress and things like that, one of the things is the people around me at a sentence were like, mm, she's gonna crack. And they would go back to my mentor and be like, she needs help. <laughs> like, like, no, I'm serious. They'd be like, she, she needs help. Like, you need to talk to her. Like, you, like, so, so someone would have to sit down with me and be like, you need to breathe. You need to calm down. Even now, there's times which even simple things, people will say, I feel like you're not eating enough. I feel like you need to have like more hours of sleep. So I, they assigned me a PA who is actually a very close friend of mine to actually make sure that I have like all my appointments in schedule to actually make sure that um, I have enough hours to sleep and eat and do all of the different things. But it was because the people around me noticed that in me and they were willing to look for solutions and get me involved and, and take care of me in a sense right. that we were able to find those solutions. And that's what I do for my team members. So sometimes I see like a like particular member of my team, I see like, okay, SPM results are coming out. This person is not okay. They're freaking out. They're panicking in right. a sense. So then after that, I go back to, to the team and I say, okay, what can we do? What can we do? Can we um, come up with a program? Can we speak to their parents? Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we give them some ammunition, some research? Or do we just need to like take this person out to Sunway Lagoon and like, yeah. have a nice outing with right. them? So it's like we, we keep looking out for each other with the assurance that someone is looking out for us. And I think that that's the best way that any business can, can survive during this pandemic. Because not just us, Look at the whole country in a sense. It's like everyone, like, kita jaga kita, right? Yeah. It's like everyone is just doing what they can for each other. And I think that that's why we are persevering in some sense. I think that's the best way forward, you know, the fact that as much as people say no one can help you but you, but we got to take into account we're social creatures as well. And collective support has always been a huge uh, impact in personal growth as well, you know? Uh, I think it's very important to remember that collective support plays a huge role in our personal growth, which is why we see a lot of this, uh, the fact that we are, the, the physical activities that we're having is disappearing, right? And you can see how it affects us in terms of our personal growth. So when we try to reach out to them in this, in the slightest way we can, I think that definitely helps a lot more than just, you know, letting them take care of themselves. But anyway, I want to talk about on the business perspective of Ascendance, right? You know, the fundamental of starting a business is funding, right? And because without funds, a business cannot operate and all that. And if you don't mind me asking, where and how did the funds came from when it comes to support ascendance to run as a social enterprise now? We have multiple channels of revenue. So we have, for example, parents who want to send their kids for programs. Mm. So the very like affordable rate to join Ascendance is only 100 ringgit a year. So most parents can afford that. Most kids can get involved in a sense. We have programs of different um, intensities, different phases, which for people who can afford, we open it up for people to actually pay. So for example, like our apprenticeship program, like some of the programs go up to like 12K, different amounts of money according to how often we've got to work with the kids. So 
that's on one side. But a majority of the funding actually comes from corporate support, corporate partners. We work with corporate partners for their own branding, advertising, CSR. So for an array of different reasons, some for even training and HR in a way. So for whatever way we can collaborate with corporate partners, we do that so that we can get the funds from them to actually support um, students from low-income families who also want to be part of this initiative, who also want Ascendance's resources for themselves. So this way, we get a model where we have a few different channels. Our web series, we also charge a minimal fee um, every month. So it's like we have different ways that we actually bring in the revenue. Of course, we weren't like this when we started. When we began Ascendance, we literally called our first program Ascendance on the Road because it was as far as we can drive. We only had one person who was old enough to drive who was 19 who had a car. So it was how much her petrol budget was for that month that she would just take us to whatever programs we had to go. Um, I think our initial investment was literally probably that and my phone bill for like calling up and setting the appointment. So like whenever we go to Makan Teh Tarik, that one also if our mentors are there, they'll pay our Teh Tarik for us. So it's like we didn't really start with much capital. Eventually we did, um, but we, we just started working with students. We did things and all. We had a crowdfunding campaign in the beginning where we raised a little bit of money to begin. And then it was a lot of grunt work. Um, again, cold calls, going to everyone you know, setting meetings, doing proposals, pitches, coming up with um, partnership agreements to getting the funding with different companies. But eventually, and of course in the beginning, people would say things like, um, we are this big company, ABC. Why would we partner with you guys? Right, you guys right. are nobodies. But over time, as we started to grow from working with tens of kids to hundreds to today, thousands and soon a million, now it's people are much more receptive. And even back then, we would meet a lot of these kind companies who would say things like, when we first started, it was with the goal to impact others, to create positivity in the community. But as we started growing, we started making money, that has not become a priority. We've kind of forgotten that goal. So at least let us help you so that you can help other right. people. And with kind corporate partners like that, we've actually managed to sustain and continue the efforts of Ascendance. So if any of you do have a company, you like this cause of Ascendance, do reach out to us at Ascendance and we would love to see how we could work with you in any way from our CSR to even things like your branding, your advertising to these 50,000 and 1 million kids that we're working with. I just want to ask a little bit about all the things that you've mentioned, like reaching out to companies, you know, reaching out to uh partnership you know where did all the skills came from was it something that your mentor taught you or was were a bit more of like a trial and error kind of thing um both i think things like this you learn from working on things so like prior to ascendance uh remember i mentioned i was this 11 year old kid who would just help out at all these different projects in a sense right so i was i was literally like i would help out in anything and they would be like i come early for the event i'd see them arranging the chairs i'm like i can arrange the chairs or so stay back right. later like i can wash the plates <laughs> yeah, so I was that kid. Person, yeah. Not really. I was just like so excited to do anything. Yeah. So like one of the things that like one of the companies there they were actually um working on branding. So they started doing branding for like different companies and they were partnering with a couple of other places to do branding for youngsters. And I was like, oh, I want to do this. I want to. I want to be part of this. I want to help companies reach out to the youngsters. So I was like, okay, can I be part of this uh team that you're putting together? And the CEO had again, she was part of this ET idea, so she kind of like had to say yes. And she was like, mm, support the young, right? All right. So she yeah. was like, all right. <laughs> and after that, I was like, all right. So they started me off and they were like, okay, can you just call our existing clients and maybe let them know um, about this particular like program that we're having or this particular partnership that we're proposing to our clients. So I started off by calling like the existing clients or just sending out emails. And I noticed that one of the things that their, their campaigns was like, it was targeted towards youngsters. But as a youngster myself, I was probably about 12, 13. I was right. like, oh, I'm not really feeling it. So I went up to the person who was the CEO and I said, I'm not really, I don't really like this campaign. Like, could we rework it a little bit? And she was very kind. She was like, okay, come up with a proposal. 
uh, straight out to me. So I came up with a proposal, a slide deck, um, some an email, and I sent it to her and I showed it to her. She's like, "All right, try it out." So then after that, and of course she guided me in all of this. But so, but she made me like work for it in a sense. So that's when I started doing the cold calls, calling up companies, starting setting meetings, going for the meetings, uh, closing the deals in a sense. And I ended up closing a few deals very with the kind support of these amazing companies that were even worth five figures in a sense as a kid. So later, when I started Ascendance, the first thing that came to my mind is do cold calls because I had done that before. It's already been kind of part of my program. Right. That's why, in a way, that's the first thing that pops up to my mind, in a way, even till today. Right. Okay. Uh, a question that I want to ask you is that when you first launched this company, Ascendance, six years ago, seven years ago, right? What is it like compared to what it is now? And also, I have another question to follow up with that: is that what are some of the biggest discovery that you have discovered while working with all these students? Hmm. All right. Nice questions. Um, biggest difference, I will go like the thing that's evolved the most is everything. We started literally as four kids. I was thirteen. I think yeah, I've, right. I've like literally I look different than when we first started. Um, now I'm I'm going to turn nineteen soon. Our oldest at that point of time was nineteen. And um, over the years, everything has changed. We have changed as people, the way we yeah. present, the way we pitch, the way we go out there. The programs we've ran back then have completely changed now with the feedback of the youngsters that we've had. Those days, we had to do everything by ourselves in a sense. Today, we have a team of youngsters all across Malaysia who work together. We were lucky back then if we could get 10 people to come for an event. Today, our events have thousands of people. <laughs> like We have a network of thousands of youngsters who come for each and everything that happens every other week. So it's like everything has changed and it's six and seven years of work in the making that's made it change in a way. Right. So that's on one side. The biggest discovery that I've had, um, I would say through working with these students, um, I've discovered so much more about myself. We, we all think we know ourselves. We think we know how we would yep. react, how we would do things. But put myself under pressure and I realize I'm a completely different person. <laughs> yeah, like, tell hey. me about it. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah. like I think I'm a calm, collected human being. Then I have a deadline and a team that doesn't want to listen to me. And then I go, ah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's at that point in time which the real learning happens because you're like, oh, wait, why am I reacting like that? Is it something in my programming, something that I saw growing up that, that I'm now reflecting? Or why do I think it's okay to react like this? Why do I get upset? Why do I get happy? Why, why do I celebrate? Why do I not? And it's all of those questions asking yourself, why do you do this? And what am I supposed to learn from this? That I think has taught me so much about myself that I didn't know back then. And it continues to teach me more and more about who I am in a way. So, you know, with the pandemic going on, I believe there's still more, a lot more people who wants to pursue the entrepreneurship uh, journey, right? What advice would you give to them at this period uh, of time? Yeah. At this period of time. Start small, but start with a goal. So I know it's like, like let me give an example of one of a sentence's yep, co-founders, yep. Hira. Uh, her career as a singer-songwriter really picked off during the pandemic. Simply because um, everyone always tells her, you can't make it in Malaysia, you've got to go global in a sense. And she's like, I love my country, I want to stay here, I want to be a singer-songwriter. And then during the pandemic, suddenly the whole world's online. So she really had that goal, she wants to be this international singer-songwriter. So now, in line with that goal, she starts looking for opportunities. All those open mics, they're all online now. All those classes, they're all online now. Because of that, she actually managed to almost tour the whole world in a yeah, sense. And actually yeah. get fan bases in places like Scotland, the UK, Germany. So now she's got lots of listeners from different parts of the globe. And she's on that way of becoming that international superstardom that she wants. 
So even for you, if you want to start now, don't let the pandemic, don't look at the pandemic as something that you've got to wait for it to be over. Look at it right now as the best opportunity you have to actually start something. You have the opportunity to go global in a sense. So what's your goal? Ask yourself that. Set that goal and start looking at what resources and opportunities do you have right now that actually you can use to achieve it. Yeah. Well, that makes so much sense because, you know, when I was doing like a physical recording, we were always recording like with people physically inside the studio, right? But now we technically got the whole world that can access Zoom and just record. That's a pretty interesting approach. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like you see, even me myself as a 26-year-old, you know, I try to figure out things in a very uh, old-fashioned way, if you might say that way, right? I'm not even that old, but... I, I, I sometimes see myself failing looking at things at that perspective as much as I, I tell myself like, hey, be positive, you know, just work on the way you have done things. But I've never really taken an approach of like how you could actually maneuver it into a bigger uh, reach, if you might say that way. And I just want to thank you for that part, actually. Finally, a new perspective in my head. <laughs> no, but, but one of the things that I've been very fortunate to see is, and my mentors always say this, you have everything that you need right now to go to the next level. So even if you don't have anything to go to the goal, the bigger goal, you can go to the next level and the next and the next. You just got to like put together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to bring you to the next level. So like one of the things that I did is when I got into the University of Pennsylvania, is I started just being a student there and looking at what are the clubs, what resources do I have now that can help me achieve my goal. And they actually have a radio station there. So I was like, maybe I could apply to be a DJ. So it's normally, as you said, physically on campus. But because of the pandemic, I could apply and I could like do it online. So I actually got a show called Changing Reality every Friday here in Malaysia in the mornings. And because of that, I started by just interviewing people I knew. But I thought that maybe I could take it a step further. I started writing to alumni of the show. So many of these alumni are today, as I mentioned, directors in companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google. And because I'm writing in from a radio show that they used to listen to in, when they were in college, they're like, all right, yeah, sure, of course I'd love to be on the show. And now I've actually managed to like, meet many of them for Ascendance, for the work that we've done. We actually managed to start a club at the University of Pennsylvania called the Ascendance Social Enterprise Club. So all of this came because of the pandemic. And because I didn't, I didn't really go out there and say, I'm going to start working with like, the world and start like, writing into these big companies. I just saw, what do I have right now that I can leverage on and take it a step further? And it's leveraged to a part because I have that goal that actually is taking me closer to that goal of going international. So you'd be surprised what resources are just like available around you right now. Right. Amazing, amazing stuff. Amazing perspective. What is the next step for you on a personal level? And what direction are you, which direction will Ascendance can't be headed towards in the coming future, say 10 years from now on? Um, for, well... For me, I think it's like this. I watched this interview once by this scientist called Dr. Guy McPherson. Mm-hmm. And he said something in this interview that I'll never forget. He said, we probably have, what, 10 years left on this planet? And I was like, 10 years? I thought it was 40. I mean, like climate change, global warming. I thought I had a little bit more time. But apparently he was like, no, 10 years. I was like, even if you take a less extreme opinion, in 20, 30 years in a sense, we would be at a kind of like, almost the end of humanity in a sense mm. if we don't do anything right now 99% of scientists actually agree that right now we've almost passed that turning point to the point of no return from coming back from the damage we're causing to the environment right. and if we don't correct that very soon there might not be a world to look for 10 years from now there may right. not be a world to look for 15 years from now and I think the pandemic is proof of that and many of the things that you see that are getting more extreme around the world is all proof of that 
So if you ask me where I see myself 10 years from now, where I see a sentence 10 years from now, I'd have to say, I, I would like to see us alive, number one, and I'd like to see us um, having solved these world problems, right. having been the platform that actually enables youngsters to come up with these solutions, to actually have the means to implement the solutions and solve the issues that we're having. Our bigger plan in the next five years here at Ascendance is to impact, inspire, and develop one million teenagers to be able to discover what they love doing and start working towards the goals that they have in mind. From there, developing 10% of them into 100,000 teenagers who are community leaders, not just achieving their own goals, but helping their schools, districts, communities achieve their goals as well, solving problems in their spaces. From there, developing 10% of them into 10,000 teenage entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs who are coming up with the next Facebook, Amazon, Google, stimulating back the world economy and giving back to also social causes, becoming social entrepreneurs. And finally, developing 10% of that into 1,000 game changers. So 1,000 Gen Zs who are the next scientists who are coming up with ideas on how do you solve climate change? How do you actually um, reduce food shortage? How do you improve water sanitation or create free energy or figure out space travel or teleportation? And actually be able to provide these youngsters with the resources, the facilities, the context, the labs to implement these ideas. So they no longer have to wait till they're done with college. Those creativity that even I have lost a little bit of will actually be used to solve these global issues at an unprecedented rate. So that's where I see us in 10 years from now. Having done all of that and being able to maybe take a break after that for a while. Relax, take a cup of coffee. (laughs) You know, with all that being said, I'm really looking forward to have another episode with you in the next 10 years and see where it progresses, you know. <laughs> but yeah, just before we end the show, I do have a few more questions, about three to two more questions uh, before we end the show. So the first one being is, where can our audience learn more about you and Ascendance or be it startyourname.com? Is there any social plugs that you would want to include? Yep. So for startmyname.com, you can find us at startmyname.com official uh, on any social media platform or at startmyname.com. For me personally, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, um, as well on anywhere else at Actually Harsha. So that's A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y-H-A-R-S-H-A. Harsha. Okay. So then on the other side for Ascendance, please do check out Ascendance Pro, which is A-S-C-E-N-D-A-N-C-E-P-R-O on Facebook, Instagram, and any other social media platform that you may be using. If you want to join Ascendance, do go to ascendancepro.com slash join dash Ascendance. And you can actually subscribe to be part of Ascendance's activities, our 50 live events, projects, and even get a copy of my book if you're lucky for only 100 ringgit a year. So with that, you can also be part of this community. And if you want to reach out to me, do just message me on Instagram or Facebook and let me know how we can work together. And I'd be more than willing to actually get in touch, collaborate, and see if we can do something to impact the world at large. Uh, last but not least, is there anyone that you would want to nominate to be on the show? Ooh, there's so many people. Okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, no, I'm serious. There's so many people. I'd say one of my co-founders at Ascendance. All three of them do absolutely phenomenal right. things outside of Ascendance as well. So do check out Hira, international singer-songwriter, changing the world with music, uh, only 21. Sanet, filmmaker at... I think now he's 20 years old. He actually has his own documentary series out, works on large video productions, received award nominations for that. Or Madhura, junior partner at an accounting company at age 24, 25. Today, she's actually helps a lot of young millennials, Gen Zs uh, be sustainable, do personal finances, and also works with small businesses to be able to sustain during this pandemic. So definitely 
one of those three amazing right. people. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You know, if there's one advice that I could give our listeners right now, definitely check out some of the things that uh, Harsha right here is working on. I feel like she's on some really awesome stuff, you know, really life-changing, if you might say that way, especially for the younger generation. And not only that, it's also for people who are from the previous generation to learn more on how you can actually improve the lives of the future generation, right? So thank you, Harsha, for being on the show. Thank you, uh, Ascendants, as well. We have been having a great time with you, you know, just hearing you talk, just giving your opinions on how things work around is definitely an eye-opener, if you might say that way. I think I might have gained, despite, you know, you said that this thing might be for younger generation. I feel like I've definitely learned something from here. But yeah, I just want to thank you for joining us today. We're really looking forward to what you, Ascendants, at StartYourName.com might have in the future. And like I said... Let's meet again in 10 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been truly an honor to be on the show, and you're a brilliant Thank host. You. That is it for this episode on Season 3. Thank you, Harsha, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. I would once again thank you for joining us and really share us the story of Ascendance, startyourname.com, and even your personal journey. And for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Yet again, as usual, I can never express how grateful I am to have you guys on the show. Thank you. I hope you gained tons of value from this episode. And if you really love this show, it would mean the world if you could just share it with one person, be it your friend or your family members or your loved ones. Thank you once again. I've been your host, Pralatipa. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Download episodes of previous shows. episode please leave us a review on itunes a listener note this episode originally aired in 2018 it's june 27 1977 it's a banner day for southwest airlines It's trading on the New York Stock Exchange for the first time. It's listed under the symbol LUV, a nod to its home airport code for Dallas's Love Field. Spirits are high and rising. Why shouldn't they be? The airline is debt-free and profitable. It's got nine planes cruising the skies of Texas. And as of this day, five million passengers have boarded Southwest. Southwest still only operates inside Texas, where it doesn't have to worry about federal regulations that govern other airlines flying between states. But now, Washington is looking to deregulate the industry, and the other airlines are sensing a downdraft. Without regulation that protects big carriers' high fares, upstarts like Southwest could be a threat. Still, Southwest Airlines CEO Lamar Muse isn't popping champagne. Instead, veins are popping out on his forehead. He's squabbling with Rollin King, Southwest's founder, board member, and chief pilot. They fight over the growth and direction of the company, and it intensifies for a year. Finally, on March 24, 1978, it boils over. Southwest's corporate attorney, Herb Kelleher, gets a call from King. Herb, 
Lamar is a freaking nightmare. He wants to double Southwest's fleet to 14 planes. That's just insane. And he wants to start a subsidiary in Chicago that he wants to call Midway Southwest. And he wants his son, Mike, his son, to run it. This will overstretch us and jeopardize Southwest. <sighs> Herb, you've got to stop him. Rollin, uh, Lamar's looking to do some aggressive things, I know. Kelleher's secretary walks into Kelleher's office. But, hey, Herb, hang on a second. Kelleher puts his hand over the phone as he waits to learn why the secretary is interrupting him. Lamar Muse is on the other line. Kelleher smacks his forehead. He's been the go-between in nearly all of the squabbles between King and Muse for 18 months now. And Kelleher is reaching his limit. Look, Rollin, we'll take care of this at the next board meeting, okay? Sorry, I'm going to have to call you back. After trying to talk both Muse and King off the ledge, Kelleher is exhausted. He sits at his desk for a moment, his shoulders hunched, and his eyes closed. He gets up and walks to his secretary's desk. I can't be the referee in a nonstop sparring match anymore. I love this airline, but Rollin and Lamar are going to destroy it from within. And I can't stop them. I give up. Kelleher worked like a dog with these two men to get Southwest aloft, but it just feels like too much now. He heaves a deep sigh and looks sadly to his secretary. Let's draft a letter to the board. That afternoon, each member of the board receives a telegram from Kelleher informing them that he is resigning. He is ready to move on. Kelleher heads to the airport to catch a flight to Houston to work on a case for another client. As he's boarding, he's unaware that Lamar Muse has drafted his own letter to the board that same afternoon. It reads, I herewith offer my resignation as an employee of Southwest Airlines. Just when the sky appears to be the limit for Southwest, two of the three men most responsible for its success have quit. And it's not like Southwest can continue to ascend on autopilot. Someone has to take over the controls. But who? When you run a growing business, no two days are the same. One day you're hiring employees, the next you're launching a website. Well, Dell Technologies Advisors understand your challenges, and they're here with the right tech solutions so you can evolve your business and stop at nothing for your customers. For advice on solutions like XPS 13 laptops powered by the Intel Evo platform, call an advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com slash support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. 
You're listening to the fourth installment in our Southwest Airlines versus American Airlines series, The Darling of Deregulation. In our last episode, American Airlines bested its rivals by rolling out the first industry-wide computerized reservation system and terminal, a system other carriers will have to pay American to join. Southwest Airlines won a huge victory, too. A legal one. A federal grand jury indicted its two chief rivals on charges of conspiring to put Southwest out of business. Southwest should be gliding, but the infighting is creating a drag on the airline. Things are moving so quickly that the board doesn't even realize both Lamar Muse and Herb Kelleher have resigned. They get Kelleher's telegram first, and their first reaction is to send a letter to Muse instructing him not to accept Kelleher's resignation until they've had a chance to talk to him. Muse is confused. What about my resignation, he thinks. His notice was actually a thinly veiled ultimatum. Either you fire Rollin, or I'll walk. When Muse hears of Kelleher's resignation, he interprets it as a ploy. He thinks that Kelleher must be supporting his effort to force the board to cut Rollin King loose. The board calls for a special meeting at Rollin King's office at Love Field. It's a small room with a lot of people in it, including Muse. They get down to business. No chit-chat. First up, John Murkison, a part owner of the Super Bowl champion Dallas Cowboys and one of Southwest's first investors. The first thing we need to do is to accept Lamar's resignation. Muse is shocked. He's thinking, wait, what? The board is letting me go instead of King? Fury and hurt overwhelm Muse. He suddenly realizes that King has swayed the board members to his point of view that Muse is leading Southwest in the wrong direction. Muse gets up suddenly. Oh, yeah? Well, if this is the way you feel, you don't need me in here anymore. After Muse storms out, a board member grabs a phone. I need to speak with Herb Kelleher right away. Uh, Oh, he's in Houston? Okay, fine. Patch me through to him. Kelleher here. Herb, we have a real emergency. You better get up here right away. There's a 1 p.m. board meeting, and we need you. The airline needs you to be at the meeting. Uh, John, uh, this is a bit awkward. Uh, Didn't you get my resignation? Yes, we did. And we don't accept it. Now, Kelleher's got a pretty good idea what this fuss is all about. But he has no clue how it will unfold. He's only brought one extra suit with him to Houston, and he figures he'll need to keep it pressed if this emergency drags on for a few days. So... He heads to the crew closet in the back of the 737 and quietly hangs up his suit. A Southwest hostess spots him. Sir, you can't hang that here. That's for crew only. Oh, it's okay. I'm I'm actually the corporate counsel for Southwest Airlines. Oh, sure you are. And I'm the king of Siam. Now, you've got to store that somewhere else, sir. Back at Love Field, a day's Lamar Muse calls his wife after leaving the board meeting. Honey... You need to come down to the office and pick me up. I can't drive the company car anymore. Board just let me go. When Kelleher arrives in Dallas, the board reconvenes. But before they go any further, there's some business he wants to take care of. Now listen, everyone. 
Why in God's name would you let Lamar go? He's done a terrific job. Look, let me talk to him. I think we can resolve this somehow. The board reluctantly agrees. But Kelleher can't find Muse. His wife has already picked him up. He's gone. The directors take his departure as a final gesture that he wants out. They unanimously vote to oust Muse. Kelleher abstains. Now, there's the question of succession. Assuming he's about to be offered the helm of the company, an excited king begins to stand up, ready to accept the role. As he gets to his feet, one board member doesn't even glance at King. Instead, he turns to Herb Kelleher. Herb, you have to be the chairman and CEO. King sits back down, crestfallen. He knows how warmly the board regards competent and personable Kelleher. Frankly, he just can't bring himself to start another fight. Kelleher? Well, Kelleher is also caught off guard. Wait, me? I've barely worked on internal operations here. A flight attendant today didn't even recognize me. I'm a lawyer. He pauses for a moment and thinks, Well, yes, maybe. I could be chairman, but at least for a while, we're going to need to bring in a professional airline executive as CEO. Okay, all in favor of her becoming chairman? Aye. Southwest Airlines is now in Herb's hands. At American Airlines, CEO Al Casey is meeting with his top executives, including Bob Crandall, his director of marketing. Casey explains that the company is in a dire situation. American Airlines' revenues are rising. That's the end of the good news. American has sunk $100 million into its computerized Sabre Reservation Network and Terminal System in the offices of more than 130 top travel agents. It'll take years to recover that investment. An American doesn't have that kind of time. As bleak as it is, that's not even the biggest problem. That would be deregulation. Like the other regulated carriers, American competes by flying routes that other carriers don't. The big carriers just stay out of each other's way. American might, say, fly more direct flights between New York and Los Angeles than United, for instance, or offer a class of service, maybe a lobster dinner on board or a piano lounge in coach class on 747 jets. And it charges premium fares for all this, all permitted under regulation. But deregulation threatens to reduce the distinctions between carriers to one common denominator, price. Whoever can afford to charge the least will win. And that's just the killer scenario that worries Casey. With deregulation, we're going to have to cut fares to compete. And if that wasn't bad enough, well, to be frank, we're out of money and we're in debt. So if we're going to survive... We need to raise money. Yes, the situation is that dire. The board leaves the meeting worried. Casey is desperate to find ways to save money. And then he has an idea. He heads to the airport at Dallas-Fort Worth, or DFW, to meet with an airport official. They shake hands cordially and then retreat to an office 
the sound of jets taking off in the distance. Listen, I'm thinking of moving some of Americans' operations from New York to a new office building in DFW. Might save us some money. For sure, Al. Uh, when y'all gonna move all of Americans' operations to DFW? <laughs> Casey snaps his briefcase shut and stands to leave. Tell you what, why don't you just make me an offer? Over the next hour, Casey and the official haggle over relocation terms. The cities of Dallas and Fort Worth, as well as the DFW Airport Authority, will issue $147 million worth of bonds to build Americans' new headquarters. They've agreed to lease the facility to the airline tax-free at a rate just high enough to pay off the bonds. Casey does some calculations on the spot. All right, so... That, uh, yeah, that'll save us about $200 million over the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah, this is just the kind of thing I've been looking for. Yes, sir. We've got a deal. In the summer of 1978, the Senate passes the Airline Deregulation Bill. As it makes its way through the House, the news of American Airlines' impending move to DFW leaks to the press just as Casey is in Dallas touring potential headquarters sites. In Texas, he's hailed as a hero. When he returns to Manhattan, his secretary warns him that a different kind of greeting awaits him. The mayor of New York is called six times. He urgently wants to meet with you. He's very angry about us leaving the city. A day later, New York Mayor Ed Koch and New York City's entire congressional delegation cram into Casey's east side office. Mr. Casey, New York will match DFW's financial incentives. We can also offer deeply discounted prime office space in the World Trade Center. Koch leans back in his chair, confident that he will bring Casey around. Mr. Mayor, that's generous, but there's something you can't offer us that Texas can. Deregulation is clearly coming. And in a deregulated world, we're going to need this kind of political clout to protect us. Texas has that. And New York doesn't. Consider this. The majority leader of the House has a congressional district that includes DFW Airport. Mr. Casey, then you're telling me you're just going to abandon New York for a few dollars and a few political points? If so, you're also betraying this city. Maybe Koch is purposely missing the point. Doesn't matter. Casey has had enough. He walks to his office door and holds it open. Gentlemen, this meeting is over. American packs its bags. American will fly into the deregulated skies from Dallas. But that puts them right into the flight path of the airline that is best prepared for deregulation. Southwest Airlines. We get support from Ping Identity. You know, we've all had a bad experience as an employee signing on to multiple applications and spending too much time with IT resetting passwords. Yeesh, makes me sweat just thinking about it. Or maybe you've had a bad experience as a customer where a website or an app doesn't remember your information and you have to re-enter your info over and over. Well, these are the kinds of experiences that Ping Identity makes a whole lot better. Ping Identity is identity security for the global enterprise, helping the world's largest organizations to deliver secure, extraordinary digital experiences to their employees and customers around the globe. 
Enterprise executives tend to be focused on delivering amazing customer experiences or empowering employees to be able to securely work from anywhere, and sometimes both, of course. Well, with Ping Identity, you can make lovable digital experiences that keep your customers secure and coming back for more. Ping also ensures that employees can stay productive and secure no matter where they choose to work so they can spend less time struggling to get access and more time, you know, getting work done. Ping Identity, championing identity for global enterprise. Head to pingidentity.com to learn more. That's pingidentity.com. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's just before midnight on October 19, 1978, in Washington. At this late hour, rowdy bar crawlers are cruising through the streets, music blaring. But traffic slows to a crawl at the inexplicable sight of about two dozen people dressed in business attire, lined up on the sidewalk outside the Civil Aeronautics Board. In five days, President Jimmy Carter is expected to sign the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, which has passed the Senate and House with bipartisan support. One day later, the CAB, the regulatory body that has governed the airline industry for four decades, will take applications from airlines for new routes they want to serve. Routes where they'll face open competition on price for the first time. The applications will be taken on a first-come, first-served basis. That's why tonight, almost two dozen airline representatives have essentially camped out on the streets of D.C. They're placeholders. Others dressed just like them will take their place many times in the days before they actually hand the CAB their requested routes. Some try to chit-chat to pass the time. I'm from Braniff. Who are you with? American. What routes are you guys trying to get? What routes? I'm not telling you anything. That's a trade secret, pal. When the CAB's doors do finally open, there's a mad, confused gold rush for routes. The airlines claim 1,292 routes, most of which are not currently served by any carrier. Braniff alone claims the right to serve 600 different routes across the country. Deregulation has certainly arrived, but no one is exactly sure what it'll mean. Even Southwest, the so-called darling of deregulation, is cautious about expansion. Southwest's new CEO, Howard Putnam, a former United executive hired at Kelleher's suggestion after Kelleher refused to be both CEO and chairman after Muse's resignation, decides to apply for a single new route. Putnam also shelves Lamar Muse's plan to double the size of the airline by opening a subsidiary flying from Midway Airport in Chicago. Putnam's less concerned about the regulators 
than he is about overexpansion. His thinking? Just because Southwest can fly anywhere it wants doesn't mean it should. Other airlines are still grabbing up as many routes as they can in January of 1979, but Southwest applies for an additional new route, Dallas to New Orleans. Then, something odd happens. Representative Jim Wright, the House Majority Leader, begins hearings aimed at creating a bill banning all interstate service from one airport in the whole country, Southwest's home base of Love Field. It's suspicious on the face of it. Putnam is blindsided. He huddles with Kelleher. Herb, help me understand. The cities of Dallas and Fort Worth who own DFW Airport still want to force us to move to DFW, right? Yeah, DFW is in Jim Wright's district, so he's going to protect DFW interests. And Braniff and American Airlines are headquartered at DFW, so they're going to be beneficiaries. If we, by law, can't fly anywhere in the country out of love, we can't fully compete with flights out of DFW. They can go everywhere. So we're servicing eight cities in Texas, and it's no problem. But if we operate out of Love Field, somehow that violates the law? This stinks. We're not lying down for this. Herb, let's go beat him in Congress. Kelleher gets on a flight, an American Airlines flight out of DFW, no less, and heads to Washington to have lunch with Oregon Senator Bob Packwood. They go way back. He's a friend and former classmate from NYU Law School. Bob, this is so wrong. You know that the competition has been suing us for nine years to get us out of Love Field, right? We've always won. Now we have to fight to be able to fly out of state from Love Field. Hell, this isn't just anti-competitive, it's legal harassment. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I'll tell you what, Herb, I'll do everything I can to help you. I didn't vote to deregulate the airlines just so we can start regulating individual airports. I can promise you, Herb, I can promise you right now that I'll block every piece of aviation legislation coming out of the House until we get this settled. I'm going to be a thorn in Jim Wright's side. And he is. Sure enough, Wright's bill languishes. As the standoff between the two chambers goes on, Arizona's no-nonsense Senator Barry Goldwater wades in. I think we're acting like a bunch of yo-yos. Why can't people just fly to the airport they want to fly to? What the hell is going on? Eventually, Kelleher himself sits down with Wright and hammers out a compromise. Southwest can fly nonstop from Love Field to cities within Texas and within the four states contiguous to Texas. But before the deal is sealed, Wright asks Herb for a pledge. Herb, once this law is in place, I have to know that you won't sue to undo it. You understand? Congressman, I promise you that Southwest Airlines will remain forever passionately neutral on this issue. I understand that we're politically outgunned on this, and I won't sue. On February 15th, President Carter signs the compromise into law. It's called the Wright Amendment. Southwest has lost some of its edge at Love Field. But just as its competitors start working their advantage at the DFW airport, Southwest deploys a new weapon that's surprisingly powerful against the competition. The once-resigned, then-reconscripted Herb Kelleher 
as incredibly effective brand spokesman. In the next episode of Southwest versus American Airlines, Americans Bob Crandall devises a strategy to snuff out rivals. But like some kind of zombie airline that refuses to die, Southwest keeps coming at American and makes it bleed. From Wondery, this is Episode 4 of Southwest vs. American for Business Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus and the Wondery app to listen one week early and ad-free. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. Supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at Wondery.com survey and tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. I'm your host, David Brown. Joe Guinto wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor, produced by Emily Frost. Kate Young is our associate producer. Our producer is Dave Schilling. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. For over 100 years, General Motors was America's automaker. But after the 2008 financial crisis, the storied car company nearly died. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of Wondery Show, Business Movers. We tell the true stories of business leaders who risked it all, the critical moments that define their journey, and the ideas that transform the way we live our lives. In our latest series, an HR executive named Mary Barra rises to become General Motors' first female CEO just in time to save the company from ruin. But as Mary fights to lead General Motors into the future, tragedy strikes. Listen to General Motors Back from the Dead from Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. The Baseball Tonight podcast is presented by LinkedIn Jobs. Way out of here. Oh, this is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster, only working from my home in New York. And yesterday, boy, a lot of news breaking. We'll get to that in a second. We're going to be talking with Paul Ravitch today, Ravi Train, checking in from California, Paul and Bikini's Hembo. And, of course, we're going to have Todd Radom's weekly quiz. Yesterday, Astros, Indians, Jose Altuve continues to do damage. Nobody out. One, two. And Altuve drills it pretty deep to left field down the line. It's hooking, and it's a grand slam. Jose Altuve goes deep, and the Astros take the lead. They're up 5-2. Altuve's second grand slam of the season. 
Robert Ford, KBME, 790 AM. Houston wins 7-2. Great game between the Braves and Mets. Early on, the Braves did what no other team has done, and that is to dent Jacob deGrom repeatedly. Ozzie has a good lead, the pitch. Line drive down the right field line. That ball is smoked. That ball is gone. This is the most runs Jacob DeGrom has given up in a game all year. Atlanta's tagged him for three in the first. Austin Riley hits a two-run homer. Chip Carey, uh, my friend, on 680, the fan. Uh, it was as if in that moment after Riley hit that two-run homer, DeGrom went back to the dugout and just decided, you know what? That's enough. He dominated the rest of the outing. One-two coming to Riley. And it's on the outside corner. He got him looking. Eight in a row now for DeGrom. He had a stretch of nine straight earlier this year against Colorado. And now he struck out eight straight, 14 for the night, one shy of his career high. And he would wind up with seven innings pitched in this game. That from Gary Cohen on SNY. The Mets tied the score three all. And then in the bottom of the ninth inning, this happened. Line drive off the pitcher's foot. Guillaume gets with a bare hand. Throw to first. He beat it. And the Braves win. Braves win four to three. Now, before the Red Sox blew out the Royals yesterday, Chris Sale spoke with reporters and says he feels like he's getting ready to return, quote unquote, sooner rather than later. He would be an interesting piece injected into the American League East race. Jackie Bradley Jr. had a fascinating play in the Brewers' 7-2 win over Pittsburgh yesterday. And that ball's launched. Center field deep, and it is going to be caught by Bradley. Stallings rounded second. The throw comes in. Here are the tag. He's out. Oh, Jackie Bradley Jr. totally baited him into that. (laughs) Acted as if it was gone. He had me fooled for a minute as well. He did. Boy, what a deep job that was. That sound from the Brewers Television Network. Taylor, I want to bring in on this. How cool was that play by Jackie Bradley Jr. where you see him kind of drifting back toward the fence as if, oh, that's a long gone home run. He starts to turn his back as if he's going to watch the ball fly into the stands. Boom, catches it, throws the first. Yeah, so you said in your email this morning, oh, can you find this Jackie Bradley Jr. play? And I, I don't know what to expect. I, I press play on it, and I'm thinking we're watching a home run. I was not entirely sure. So he totally faked me out as I was watching it this morning. Exactly. Great play by him. Trevor Bowers under investigation following sexual assault allegations, and he's still on track to make his next scheduled start on Sunday, according to Los Angeles Dodgers manager Dave Roberts. That start would come in Washington, D.C., unless something changes over the next three days. Here's Dave Roberts yesterday. Uh, we do. We do. Um, as of now, we're kind of in the middle of uh, letting um, – the commissioner's office, Major League Baseball, handle this. Uh, it's in their hands. And right now, our, uh, our, our kind of direction was to just move forward um, and uh, not do anything as far as the player and Trevor. And so our plan is he is going to start on Sunday. It, it's actually, right, it's out of our hands. Um, you know, regardless of what direction the organization want to do, it's, uh, it's something that this is what has to happen. Um, and so it's out of everyone's hands. Yankees owner Hal Steinbrenner vowed to keep manager Aaron Boone, general manager Brian Cashman, the quarter of his team together moving forward. He said he has no thoughts 
about making uh, the Yankees becoming a seller before the trade deadline. Here's Hal Steinbrenner speaking to reporters yesterday about his struggling team. Look, Brian and I have been doing this a lot of years together. Um, he's extremely intelligent. Like I said, he understands the deal when it comes to, you know, relying on pro scouting, relying on analytics, but also building areas that all teams are building, like analytics, like performance science. Um, we have we communicate very well. Uh, there's not much that happens without him running up by me first. Uh, he knows that's the way I want it. Um, you know, I think he's I think he's done a good job. This this team that we put together leaving spring training was a very, very good team. And they just haven't played up to their to their potential that I believe they still have, of course, because um, it's essentially the same team. And I'm talking about the starting lineup that, um, you know, we had last year and the year before. And, and these aren't aging players. These guys are in their prime. Um, they just haven't played up to their potential. And that's that's been the, the big problem. At least they haven't done it consistently. White Sox and Twins yesterday were tied four all in the bottom of the sixth inning. And this happened. It's a brand new game tied at four. Zach Collins torpedoes this one to left center. It is out of here. Boy, Zach Collins up in the zone has been a demon recently, and it's 5-4 Sox. That, of course, uh, those were the voices of Steve Stone, Jason Benetti on the White Sox television network. By the way, uh, speaking of the White Sox, who won 8-5, we've got the White Sox in Brewers. On July 25th, ESPN announced that yesterday. We're going to be in Milwaukee, and Taylor, I'm going to be getting Broadwurst. Ooh, very nice. And uh, our friend, the Welsh Brewer, is going to be very excited for that news since, uh, you know, we're, we're a Brewers podcast now, officially. I know. I mean, we're just every day. The Brewers are dominating the podcast. Got to talk them. Yeah. <laughs> the All-Star starters were announced yesterday. Uh, I'll be talking with Carl Ravage about that. Paul Mbikides also will be checking in, and Todd Radom. First, uh, before we move forward to that, I know you got some thoughts about the ESPN radio games this weekend. Yeah, Buster, a couple things to promote here. Uh, first off, ESPN radio games. We've got two of them. There is one on Saturday, July 3rd. You've got Yankees at Mets. Tune in at 1230 p.m. Eastern time for that. And then on Sunday, 4th of July, you've got Mets at Yankees. Game three of that series. Tune in at 6 p.m. for that one as well. And uh, also, you got to watch the Euros this weekend on ESPN+. Plus. Our guy, Kevin Seipolt, he, uh, he called you out. He should have been calling me out for uh, reading the copy that I wrote. He was saying, oh, Buster, you know, you're saying it's the semifinals that start today on Friday. And uh, no, it's indeed the quarters. And, and uh, Kevin is right about that. So that is my fault. And, and he uh, did that on Twitter. And it was funny when I saw that, I was like, hmm, I wonder if Taylor will see that. I wonder if he'll own it. Yeah. And he did. I gave you credit for that. I, yeah. I figured you probably wouldn't see it. And we wouldn't even talk about it. But when I saw that, I was like, I mean, here's the reality. Like, I'm locked into the baseball season. There's so much news going on, and I'm not sure what round the Euros are in. <laughs> you, have you watched one second of the of Euro 2020? So let's talk about Sunday night baseball <laughs> coming up. What's <laughs> I'm up? excited yeah. for this series between the Mets and the Yankees because you've got two teams on edge. We're going to be talking with Ravi about that. The Baseball Tonight podcast is brought to you by Gum Out. Everyone is looking for an edge in sports, in life. And we all know the words performance enhancement are used a lot these days. But now you can get it legally. Hear me out. Gum out with Carbon Clear's performance enhancement for your car. Carbon Clear is potent. It's the most advanced fuel additive on the market. In fact, cars on gum out get better engine performance, increased fuel efficiency, and lower emissions. It takes only two minutes to pour gum out into a gas tank, so it's quick and easy to use. 
and it's not hard to find. You can get it at mass retailers or your local auto parts store. So what are you waiting for? Get your car running right with gum out, now with Carbon Clear. Performance enhancement for your car. All aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch. The Ravi Train is parked on the West Coast because, Carl, your son's getting married. Sam, getting married. How cool <laughs> is that? And are you going to cry? <laughs> That's a, you're asking two great questions. Uh, I'm ecstatic about it, for sure. And, you know, given everything that we've all been dealing with and everybody who's in it for the last 15 months, to have people be able to celebrate something joyous will we'll take joy. So we're very excited about that. And every time that I speak, Buster, it doesn't really matter where I speak in front of family. I end up crying. I've tried really hard. I've written down a few words. I, I, there is really not a lot of – I've tried to avoid true emotional – I'll, I'll cry. Yeah, I probably will. So that's what I do when I speak in front of my family. I end up just crying. I, I look up and I see them and I start to cry. It's kind of strange, but that's, that's who I am. You and I are exactly the same then because I embarrass my – especially my daughter – uh, i never forget when my mom passed away, I spoke at, uh, and gave uh, the eulogy and yeah. I asked Sydney when it was over, you know, how was, you know, Sydney, how was that? And she goes, dad, I just couldn't believe you were crying. You're crying in front of all these people. <laughs> yeah. So I've been embarrassing my daughter her whole life. And so I totally relate to, uh, and I know I'm going to cry at my two kids' weddings for sure. Uh, yeah. The All-Star Game starters announced yesterday. I'm not going to run through the whole list. that uh, Anyone can go online and see them. I wanted to, you know, just ask you about something that jumped out at you. Something that absolutely jumped out at me, which I love, is when you have smaller markets. It's like their fan bases stand up and say, our guy's going to yeah. get in. And they work for it. So you get an Adam Frazier, the Pittsburgh Pirates, it's second base. Uh, you get uh, Nick Castellanos. And Jesse Winker of the Reds, I love that, Carl. I've always loved that. My reaction, Buster, to it is that it was more accurate than it usually is. It's usually a popularity contest, but it usually feels like when you go to a and look, I'm I'm out here, I'm in I'm at Tory Pines, and you we they just played the U.S. Open here, and as long as the U.S. Open has, you know, they always say the top 28 players, the top 50 players in the world are attending then the field is great. And I think a lot of times with the All-Star Games, if the biggest names are in attendance, it feels like they've done their job. And I, I always looked at the All-Star Game as, A, I think every team should be represented. I think that's critical. But I do think that at times we don't have the we, – we actually don't reward those that have had the best first half of the season. And I think we are doing that. I do think there's a lot of pent-up excitement about getting back to these games, having people in the stands and in those markets where baseball is the fabric. I don't want to digress, but we just finished the College World Series. Mississippi State has 23,000 people in Omaha for those games. If you were to select a college all-star team, Mississippi State, Arkansas, LSU would all have players represented because their fans are so passionate. Cincinnati is the same way. I was with our director, Scott Johnson, who's been doing the College World Series for 31 years, Buster, in the golf cart while we were preparing for our game because we would sit in golf carts often, he would have the Cincinnati Reds game up. I said, we should have Castellanos in the home run derby. He said, Castellanos and Winker, you should have them both. So the, the connection between the fan bases in those cities, and I think Boston, too, in a lot of ways, uh, given what they've done and where they are in the standings, 
reflects not only, hey, we're proud of our city, but these guys should be in. Just, people have voices now, as we're seeing in a lot of different areas. It's good to see them reflected by the all-star starters. That's who should, they, they're the best players so far. They should play. Yep. Uh, the Reds have only had two outfield all-star game starters in a single year once before. This from our friend Sarah Langs. 1956, Gus Bell and Frank Robinson. So to see that was pretty cool. I, you know, the whole thing, we, we have to see the complete teams before we talk about quote-unquote snubs. The one guy that I'm really rooting for uh, and hope that he finds his way is Cedric Mullins of the Orioles, who I just love his story, how he's evolved as a player, worked his tail off. You know, to me, he you can make a strong argument. He should be in the starting lineup. I just hope that he's there, you know? I, I would I would agree with that. At, you know, at some point, you know, I understand Frazier and the Pirates. At, at some point, I think people do, will, will they'll be able to discover somebody like Cedric Mullins. The Orioles are obviously a, a non-story as far as the races go this year, so it's very difficult to, to have the national voice say, I want to see, see Cedric Mullins in spite of what he did early in the year, in spite of his speed, in spite of his defense. So I would agree with you. I'm, I'm more impressed with the starters that were that were named as opposed to or or obsessing over getting getting Cedric Mullins or anybody other, you know, anyone else like that in because that's a, that, those are feel-good stories as opposed to the guys that actually have earned it. But I, hear, I certainly would have no problem putting Cedric Mullins on the national stage. He's, a, he's a, he's a great player, but he's also a, a phenomenal personality. Hal Steinbrenner clearly puts the onus on the player. He backs Brian Cashman, backs Aaron Boone. It's unusual to hear a baseball owner or an owner of any other professional sports team put it more on the players than on the front office, but that's what he did. What did you think? Yeah, I loved it, and especially with his last name. It, that's never you know that's never associated with a Steinbrenner decision. Let's fire Billy Martin four times, and I'm pissed at the players, and how do we get rid of that player? And in this case, the idea that he stood up for both of those guys, I, I found it fascinating. And I, I look, there, so he's right. I, I do think, though, that at some point, you do have to look at the players. You know, we were having a conversation last night with a bunch of baseball folks after this sort of proclamation by Hal, and they all kind of started yelling about, well, look at how good the players are. Look at how good Carlos Stanton is. And at some point, you have to say, well, wait a minute. You know, he's he's got some greatness in him, but how, how consistently good is he? Are they? Are they a team capable of doing the things that Al Steinbrenner thinks they are capable of doing, and many others think they're capable of doing? I'll be honest, I'm I'm cheering out on that right now. I'm not certain that 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 group, which I was all in on uh, preseason, is is capable of being the best team in the American League. It's hard to look at them and think they're not, but at some point, maybe you look at them through a different lens and, and wonder, well, are they really that good? I mean, are they? Are they as good as or as deep as the Red Sox and the Rays? I'm not sure. You know, I'd say that I'm a little more skeptical about their abilities than I once was and and am really waiting to see how it plays out. I'm glad he did that. I think he's right to say, well, these players could have played better. We're paying them all these money, and they had a track, they had a track record. They're not performing the way that they should, but I'm not sure that the surety is, is applicable the way it once was. I'm just not. No, and I got to say, and I agree, you know, it's mostly on the players. You can understand, you know, this is a group of players who've had a lot of success, put a lot of runs on the board in the past, but I, I also have disagreed with the roster construction the Yankees have done. In recent years, they've gone so yeah. heavily right-handed. Yeah. 
Um, I get that the analytics, you know, view big picture versus specific series, but I think to have a lineup that's so stacked on the right side has made it so much easier for managers, and I, I absolutely have not understood that. I, I want to ask you about the Chicago Cubs. Six and a half games out of first place. Uh, according to Fangraphs this morning, their playoff chances are at 13.5%. Uh, I sent out a poll on Twitter this morning asking the question, should they be buyers or sellers? We're, what, uh, 28 days before the trade deadline. I got 8,537 votes in. 84% say sell. Carl, I kind of think if you could have a window into the minds of Cub ownership, Cub front office, that might be kind of where they're leaning to. (laughs) 84% at this point sell versus buy. To me, Buster, they were leaning that way before the season started. (laughs) I don't know how we would look at the Cubs if we're going to frame it in buyers or sellers. They've been sellers from last offseason. That's what they are. We are selling off good pieces so that we can be better down the road. You were you were and are a seller. I'm sorry. Uh, and I love the way that they were playing, but let's, let's assume that perhaps they're regressing to the mean here. This is who they are. This is what the front office knew that, that we were going to end up at. So to me, they are—they have been telling. That's what they are, and nothing about their performance, and especially now that we're at the All-Star break and six and a half games out, would indicate otherwise. They have valuable pieces that other teams are going to want. They're in a good spot to sell and, and begin to rebuild. But the idea that we're framing it, should they be, um, they already have declared themselves sellers before we got into this season, in my opinion. All right, and I want to ask you uh, before you go about the situation with Trevor Bauer. We heard Dave Roberts, the Dodger manager, say that it's out of our hands. Major League Baseball uh, is in the process of investigating the situation. First and foremost, and you and I both love Dave Roberts, that is just simply not accurate. It's not out of their hands. They don't have to start Trevor Bauer on Sunday uh, against the Washington Nationals. Um, but I think what he's referring to more is the fact that they feel like that they're waiting for some directive from Major League Baseball. Personally, yeah, Carl, yeah. Is, you know, I've read all the stories. You've read all the stories about the situation. I want more information. Uh, you know, I'm really I, I, I'm curious to see what happens. We're all waiting and seeing what the DA decides on what to do with Trevor. There is that seven-day window that Major League Baseball can create for, can create for itself by effectively putting Trevor Bauer on administrative leave. Um, that, to me, at this moment, seems like a, you know, a solution that they should explore. But, as I say, I, I, I want to see more information. What about you? Yeah, I think the sensitive subject nature here um, causes people first to recoil because the details are so graphic and so out there. You know, and it takes most people, most people out of their comfort zone. So you're reading things and hearing things that are, that are very uncomfortable, and to to make a judgment of the things you're reading is rather, to me, it's rather easy to jump to a conclusion, and I think the out of our hands is the plea to have somebody else make a decision before we have to, or say something about a subject that we're not, we're not truly comfortable with, we don't particularly agree with, or we do agree with it and we don't want to share that. I think it's a very sensitive, obvious subject that, that's here. And I think you get into all sorts of questions about individuals' rights and their own personal lives or their public lives. I think, to me, that comment from Dave is, uh, we, hey, w- 
we're, we're, we need help here. You know, I, I'm not sure we're comfortable to decide what to do about a pitcher and and if this is some particular behavior that he was involved with that was consensual, does that put us in a position to become judge and jury on someone's off-the-field life? Those types of things, I think, are very uncomfortable. And therefore, I think the Dodgers are looking for a little help on this. Yeah, and I think that one thing that's important, it's, it's pretty apparent as we read more information about this, that you've got essentially the information's coming from two camps, which have their own, you know, have their own perspective on this. And we have not heard, like, I, I, I really do want to hear from, from the DA in terms of what they find, because the DA seems to be the one person with subpoena power who can talk to everybody and, and get more information about what exactly happened here. All right, Carl, have fun this uh, weekend. I'm dying for, for my daughter to get married someday because I, I want to sit there and cry <laughs> openly. So have fun with that. I will absolutely have a blast. Thanks, Master, very much. Talk to you soon. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well, Buster. How are you today? I'm doing great. Your name came up in conversation the other day with the great Tyler Kepner of the New York Times, who, as I said to him, you know, he probably has more of an eye for uniform style than just about any writer uh, other than you, because you do not only are you a graphic artist, but you're an excellent writer. Uh, and, and he made it very clear, Tyler, that he does not like this year's uh, All-Star Game unis. And so we said on the podcast Wednesday, look, you know what? We got to go to the expert, the Todd father, Todd Radom. What say you about the All-Star Game uniforms? Well, Buster, I am an avid reader of Tyler's. I am also uh, honored to be a friend. And I always see when he slips in a uniform reference here and there. So, yes, he is enthusiastic and knowledgeable about this. So here's my take. Nike, Nike, a behemoth. I think Nike did something like 37 a billion dollars worth of retail sales last year. Maybe they know more than we do, but <laughs> even if they did, here's what's going on. Speaking of billions, we need uh, Sarah Langs to run the numbers, right? Bring everybody in. But Nike also has a uh, $1 billion 10-year contract, something like that with MLB, and they're going to do what they want to do, and they are going to uh, utilize an exhibition game like the All-Star Game as their laboratory for experiment, perhaps. Uh, And I'm just going to pile on and talk about these uniforms and say, you know, vomit emoji, whatever, you know, whatever is applicable. It's a a series of disparate elements that don't hang together. We've got, you know, type, vertical type stacked. The human eye does not read letters that way. You and I both know that. We've got floral trim details, which I'm not quite understanding. Uh, I do understand the fact that we've got some coloration in these jerseys that pertains to where this game was supposed to have been, which was Atlanta. Uh, Short notice, understandable. But, uh, Buster, there's a lot going on with these that I just don't get. And I always say that, you know, aesthetics and visual taste are very subjective. But, uh, boy, there's been a a universal, uh, uh, universal outcry against these, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, said they just look like bad softball uniforms to me. 
like a bad idea. I don't, I, I, I don't like them. And I don't have any style as we established <laughs> in the podcast. Right. Well, you know, the, the one thing that Tyler did point out, which I agree with, too, and, you know, baseball rooted in tradition, and we are so used to seeing the AL and the NL squads line up along their respective base paths in these different uniforms. Uh, you know, I, I've always, you know, I'll be in Denver. It's going to be my 25th straight All-Star game. And I always take note of the fact that the San Francisco Giants, when they are wearing their home uniforms, they wear cream. It's a little bit of a different hue than all those white uniforms that the rest of the NL home clubs wear. And it used to be that you'd have, you know, different grays and powder blues. So that tradition is important to see that kind of wick away for crass marketing and merchandising, which helped pay what, you know, send me into my uh, dotage. Uh, I get it, but it's kind of sad to see. So mull this over. I want you to answer this next week. I'd raise this on Sunday Night Baseball as you were just talking now about the Giants uniform. I asked Matt Vescursion and Alex Rodriguez, is there a whiter white than the Dodgers home uniform? Okay, just mull that over and give me the answer because I know you well enough to know you're going to have a technical answer for that, which I, I'm looking forward to. Um, this week's forgotten franchise, not surprisingly, is tied to Buffalo. That's right. So Buffalo, Buster, last weekend, I was in Buffalo, having seen the Buffalo Blue Jays take on Baltimore. So it only seems appropriate to discuss the National League's Buffalo Bisons, a team that spent seven seasons as a big league club from 1879 to 1885. The Bisons were good, but never great. And despite the fact that for four seasons, they featured four future Hall of Famers on their roster, put Galvin, Jim O'Rourke, Deacon White, and Dan Bruthers. They never finished above third place in an eight-team National League. Galvin, baseball's first 300-game winner, pitched over 70 complete games in both 1883 and 1884 and won 46 games in each of those seasons. He is also remembered as baseball's first juicer, the first player to be widely known for using a performance enhancer as a member of the Pittsburgh Alleghenies now the Pirates, in 1889. This is at the tail end of his career. Galvin, then a fading superstar who was nursing a sore arm, consumed an elixir made buster of monkey testosterone that was thought to contain energizing powers. Well, of course. <laughs> of course, as one does. <laughs> he, he pitched a 9 nothing two-hit shutout against a very strong Boston club, and his performance and the reason for his enhancement was lauded by the Washington Post the following day. Galvin was also a friend of Buffalo Mayor and future president Grover Cleveland. As for the Bisons, they missed out on their window of opportunity to win, and this led to a plummeting uh, attendance and attendant financial woes. In September 1885, ownership unloaded the entire roster to the Detroit Wolverines for a mere $7,000, and the Buffalo franchise was dropped from the league after the conclusion of the season. The Bisons became a minor league club in the newly formed International League in 1886, and the current version of the Buffalo Bisons eventually assumed the history of the NL Bisons, this week's forgotten franchise. That's awesome. There's so much in there. That's so cool. Uh, <laughs> monkey I, testosterone buster. Monkey testosterone. Yeah, I get the feeling there's probably some current player at some point may have 
<laughs> thought, you know, if there was an opportunity, maybe a pitcher would use monkey testosterone on the ball, right? It could be. Or it could be a great band name, too. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, so tell me what your impressions were about the ballpark in Buffalo. Yeah, I've been to the ballpark before for a minor league game, but Buster, it was really uh, quite amazing and very impressive how they decked the place out in the offseason and made it really seem like a Blue Jays home. Uh, you know, this is done, you know, uh, this is my, we've been to a lot of major league stadiums, you and I, but there are very few, uh, you know, temporary homes like this, but they really, uh, I think did a good job and what an unusual experience. The game that I went to, uh, was, uh, attendance was a shade under 6,000 people. So this very small scale seeing a major league game, uh, was really unusual. Uh, the, the, um, the ballpark Salem field was the first retro designed stadium a couple of years before Camden Yards. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, interesting piece of the puzzle there, but also just seeing uh, around the ballpark, how they shoehorned in uh, all the trappings needed to host a major league visiting team too. There are big tents out behind right field that you've probably seen. I got on top of that parking garage out there to look down on that, just to kind of walk around and, see what's going on. And uh, they've got weight rooms out there, all that stuff. But it was a really cool, interesting experience. I will say, Buster, that uh, the the scuttlebutt around Buffalo is that the locals are not happy about having to pay major league prices because maybe they're used to a $7 beer that's now $12. Wow. And maybe the ticket prices are uh, not quite what they're used to either. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That uh, yeah, if you're a fan there and you're used to paying a certain price for baseball, to see it jacked up that much, uh, yeah. Nah. I wonder if there's some way to, to you know, because certainly uh, there's been a lot of accommodation by Buffalo to to help out Major League Baseball to help out the Blue Jays. So anyway, all right, yeah. let's get to this week's quiz. All right, guys. So I don't know if you know what happened last week, but uh, mm-hmm. Taylor, let's just say that uh, Christina. Um, you know, this counts toward your record, even though you were both not around. Right. Christina got a win, and Dave Schoenfield um, pinch hit and struck out for Buster is all I'm going to say. That's And that counts against my record? Yeah, it what does. <laughs> I, I think that's the way it works, Buster. I'm going to consult the big, thick book bound in Moroccan leather and uh, dust it off and... Yes, that is what the rules say. Well, and you are the chief executive of the weekly quiz. So Section we- 9, codicil 6A. Rules are so rules. <laughs> that's where we are. But, you know, you have a chance to uh, regain uh, what you lost last week. So here we go. Which one of these events took place most recently? Is it A, PNC Park in Pittsburgh hosted its first game? B, Ichiro Suzuki signed his first contract? with the Seattle Mariners. C, Wander Franco was born. D, Albert Pujols made his MLB debut. Took place most recently. PNC Park opens. Ichiro signs his first Mariners contract. Wander Franco is born. Or Albert Pujols makes his MLB debut. Wow. I love that set of questions. Go ahead, Taylor. Oh, boy. Um, Let's go... Let's go with the young guy. Let's go. Wander Franco was born. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, gosh, I'm going to go. Albert Pools makes his debut. 
You were both incorrect. You're both close. However, PNC Park in Pittsburgh hosted ah. the first game on April the 9th, 2001, whereas Wonder Franco was born on March 1st, 01. Amazing. Albert Pujols made his debut on April the 2nd, 2001, <clears throat> and way back on April, uh, or excuse me, November 18th, 2000, Ichiro signed with the Mariners. So wow. we have a stalemate this week once again. Yes. That's what, what are you doing? Yes, Taylor, you're trying to catch me. You're actually trying to get these right. I know, I know, but I don't want you to get them right. So it's do I get any X? Do I get any partial points there, Todd, for being closer? There are no participation trophies, no <laughs> partial points. Yes, you know, flake. come on, Buster. <laughs> what is this? This is no, no. It's a debacle. All right, thanks, Todd. All right, guys, thanks. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo is Paul Ambikides, a researcher at ESPN, a honcho on the show Get Up. And, I, I mean, he was viewed as a wild party until we started to hear about Taylor Schwenk's uh, match. <laughs> he goes out and about. I asked Taylor, you know, uh, or I plan on asking Taylor at some point about how many drinks that he's going to ingest starting today over the four-day holiday weekend. What about you, Hembo? How many drinks over four days? Taylor's going to Taylor's going to lose count. Uh, not only uh, Buster do I have a four day weekend, but Get Up is dark uh, for a few days next week, and I have another vacation, little family reunion action. So uh, I'm going to probably lose count. I'll probably um, make my way back to New Jersey a few pounds heavier, and hopefully, I still have it in my heart to uh, find a way onto the podcast next week, somewhat sober. So that's the objective. Yeah, just, you know, I mean, drink some coffee, have some water, you know, sort of get settled in before you go back into oblivion after your. <laughs> um, I got to tell you, you know, we, we've heard from uh, Brewers fans this week. They want more Brewer talk. And, and I can always uh, rebut all of that by saying, hey, I picked the Brewers to win the division. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I picked them was because I listened to you. Mm. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. The Brewers um, were a team I liked then, and they're a team I liked even more now, Buster. And I've, I've identified three reasons why they're the best team in baseball right this second. One, their outfield defense has gone from being a liability to a strength. Milwaukee ranks first in the sport at converting fly balls into outs. It ranked 23rd last season. Now, Jackie Bradley Jr. hasn't hit a lick, but he can still go get it, as we saw yesterday. Two, Buster, they found an answer at shortstop in Willie Adamas. Brewer shortstop for batting 179 before trading for him. And since, he has already produced nearly one and a half wins above replacement in 37 games. Milwaukee owns the best record in baseball since making that trade. And three, their pitching staff, especially their relievers, are unfazed. Opponents are batting 144 with an OPS of 496 and a 36% strikeout rate and high-leverage plate appearances. Buster, all three of those figures rank first across baseball. Sunday Night Baseball this weekend, Mets against the Yankees, and what I love about this series is it feels like both teams are on edge. Mm. Uh, The Mets are in first place, but at the same time, it it does feel like that they kind of missed some opportunity to separate themselves in the American League East, or excuse me, National League East. Uh, and the Yankees clearly on edge with their owner coming out and talking about how the onus is on the players to turn this around. Talk to me about the Mets offense. My goodness. Well, the Mets have squandered opportunities this season to distance themselves because the pitching has been so freaking good, but they just can't generate any runs. In fact, uh, by one standard of measure, they're the worst team in baseball 
at doing that. What I did, Buster, was exclude home runs from the picture. So I was able to subtract all runs scored via the home run and see what teams can produce without them. The Mets rank dead last in baseball by that measure. They average 1.9 runs per game without homers. The Yankees rank 29th. They average 2.1 games without home runs. So on Sunday night, even though it's not the ideal pitching matchup, if you're not going to see the ball fly over the yard, you're probably not going to see a high-scoring ball game. You know, by the way, since they fired their hitting coaches, their batting average has dropped. Their OPS yeah. is lower. Okay? So yeah. You know, people have brought that up. Uh, well, you know, they've turned around. The offense has not turned around. And I understand no. injuries, but uh, I can tell you, there were players on that team who were really upset with that change, and the numbers have not gotten better for the mm. offense. All right, the Yankees lineup and balance is a big topic of conversation. I did radio this morning, KJZ, uh, about uh, what Hal Steinbrenner said yesterday. And I said, yeah, generally I agreed with the idea that it's on the, on the backs of the players. But it's not a well-constructed lineup or roster. No, it's not, Foster. And we can quantify that. Here's what I mean. Yankees hitters this season have a platoon advantage on only 43% of their plate appearances. That ranks 29th in baseball and is on pace for the lowest Yankees mark in the season for which data is available. We can go back to 1974 for that stat. The last wow. time the Yankees won the World Series in 2009, their hitters enjoyed a platoon advantage at the highest rate in baseball. That was 70% of their plate appearances Jeez. in 2009. So look, it's very clear. The Yankees have a bunch of really good right-handed hitters or at least right-handed hitters for whom the, the back of the baseball card is pretty impressive, even if they're not perfor- performing up to expectation this season. But that aside, it's 100% accurate in saying that the lineup balance is a major issue for the Yankees in such an unprecedented way that over the, going back over the last 50 years, it hasn't been this kind of thing. And obviously you build your, your lineup for the ballpark for which you play in, and the front office just has not done a good enough job at doing that in the Yankees' case. Of that, there's no question. It's interesting. I know internally in the Yankees conversations, they don't feel like uh, that uh, the ballpark is necessarily built for left-handed hitters. They feel like right-handed hitters actually fare better. I I would disagree with that. And I also think that when you face good teams in important games, you are just absolutely putting on it on a tee for the opposing manager to run out effective right-handed relievers just to mow down groups of right-handed hitters. Uh, Chris Sale spoke very positively with reporters about where he feels like he is as he comes back. Uh, to me, he might turn out to be the biggest addition before the trade deadline for any contender. Uh, that's a good way of putting it, Buster. It's a good way of framing it, given how, no, how effective we know he can be when he's, when he's at his best or even close to being at his best. And the Red Sox are a much better ball club than I expected, and I think a lot of people expected coming into this season. I do think that he'll provide them a nice shot in the arm, and I'm very curious to see the kind of workload that Alex Cora allows him, right? Because I think obviously it's a, in an ideal world, he can give you five or six innings every fifth or sixth day. Who knows if he'll be able to do that? But what we do know is that so long as he's reasonably healthy, the stuff is going to play up. So in almost any capacity, especially if he's used as a reliever or as, a, as an opener type, whatever they choose to do, I think he'll be exceptionally effective in that kind of capacity. What would worry me if I were a Red Sox fan is the volume of innings that they ask him to throw. I would err on the side of, fewer uh, especially at the very beginning that's obviously huge for him because if he's if he's pitching meaningful innings for them in september and even october and that's what matters most and if that's the sixth seventh or eighth innings then more power to him if in fact the cubs turn into sellers and i think they will be you know as of today 13 and a half percent chance of making the postseason 
I, if I were to gamble, you know, bet on Craig Kimbrell's landing spot, I think it's going to be the Red Sox. What would you think? Mm. Uh, I like that a lot. If you um, add Craig Kimbrell to Chris Sale to what is an outstanding lineup and a team that's playing really, really well right now, there's no obvious reason to me why this club couldn't be considered the favorite or at least amongst them to get out of the American League, which for my money is just wide open. And I think the Red Sox are recognizing that opportunity. The Yankees aren't the team that anybody uh, thought they would be. The White Sox were the other potential juggernaut. They're as injured as anybody. So there's no obvious reason why the Red Sox can't go all in. The bullpen is an issue. The pitching staff is obviously the area that they need to go after. Chris Sale is an enormous shot in the arm. And Craig Kimbrell, especially if he's not going to cost you an arm and a leg, makes all the sense in the world to me. He, he has, look, he, he's erratic. And that's what concerns me about anytime Craig Kimbrell, when you, when, you know, when the base runner allowance is, is higher than you'd like that, obviously you're, you're, you're playing with fire, but considering what's going to be available at the trade deadline, that makes all the sense in the world for me. All right, Hembo, uh, hang in there and make sure you're a little bit sober when I talk to you next week. Uh, most definitely. And I just have to say, I am thrilled for all of our Brewers uh, fans who are going to get the opportunity to have their team showcased on Sunday Night Baseball. Just a quick story, Buster. I had the chance to go see a game at Miller Park a couple of years ago. It was a 6 o'clock p.m. game on a Monday night. No joke. I was in a line with literally hundreds of cars to get into the parking lot in order to tailgate. For my money, Milwaukee is one of the best baseball towns in America. And I am thrilled for that, for that uh, fan base, how good that team is right now. And America is going to get to see that later this month. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We've, we've had him on Sunday Night Baseball a couple times since I've been on mm-hmm. uh, on the, on that show, and I'm excited to go back there. And I, I told uh, Taylor at the top of the show, I'm like, I get, a, I get to eat a bratwurst in Milwaukee. It can't get better than that. <laughs> uh, later, boys. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Friday. First up, we have George Franco at GEFranco32. George writes in, the Braves' bullpen has lost many games this year, question mark. Uh, I guess I think that's more of a statement. And he says, wouldn't Kimbrell returning to Atlanta be the perfect fit? Perfect. And I got to tell you, you know, we, we mentioned yesterday that in terms of volume of interest, Craig Kimbrell would be at the top of the list of any player in baseball. Like All teams could use Craig Kimbrell. He'd be a perfect fit for the Braves. He'd be a perfect fit for the Yankees. He'd be a perfect fit for any team that's trying to win a World Series this year. If I had to guess as of this moment, I'm betting on the Red Sox. I think that's the team that's going to wind up with Greg Kimbrell. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. Last one for the week. Robert Beretta at Holler at Rob writes in, Hey, Buster, the Phillies seem to be missing everything needed to be a contender and should be selling aside from a big name like Aaron Nola. Who else do you think teams might be interested uh, in dealing for? Actually thinking about writing a column about this. If I'm the Phillies, I am absolutely marketing Zach Wheeler right now. You know, he's at the middle of this contract that was signed pre-pandemic. The financial context has changed. He would have value in the market. You would have teams interested in him. And let's face it, as the Phillies move forward, they're going to have to restructure uh, their payroll uh, in the way that they're spending their money. And now would be a great time to get rid of that contract. Much in the same way we saw the Cubs uh, during the offseason wanting to sort of shake things up financially. They move you Darvish uh, and, you know, got good return. I don't think trading Zach Wheeler this, this winter would be nearly as easy given all the CBA uncertainty. Alrighty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games. No show on Monday. It is a uh, official company holiday to observe the 4th of July. And happy 4th, everyone. I know it's not everyone's hat, but uh, I, I'm a big fan, and I, I like to view it as a, a kind of a hopeful holiday. You know, even if you're down on, on good old US of A, you know, 
think think about the future and uh, and think about what you have. So if we include today as part of the holidays, over the next four days, how many drinks ingested for you? Ooh, boy. Uh, it might be a little bit on the slower side because we don't have any definitive plans. I am planning on going to the local pub on Saturday to watch England, Ukraine. So uh, that could that could oh, get interesting. Be so there. much fun. You're yeah. going to have a blast. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a good time for sure. So mm, I'm definitely not. I'll put it like let's go, let's go 22 for the weekend. <sighs> Three days. It's three, three days, Buster. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, you know. I, I. I. I don't know how you do. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. That's it for today. My thanks to Carl, to Hembo, to Todd, to Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight Podcast. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Fortunately, GEICO makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. It's a good thing, too, because having a home is hard work. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. GEICO.com. Easy. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. It is the Riots Podcast. Happy Independence Day observed. <laughs> happy Monday. Happy day after the 4th of July weekend. Hopefully yep. everybody had a good weekend. Yeah, we did. And it ended abruptly because we're here <laughs> on a Monday. <laughs> I really, really wish. We'll have to look at the calendar. I only care about when Christmas and New Year's fall. Uh-huh. Because when it falls on the weekend, that's the worst. Or if right. it falls like on a Friday. Yeah. Because a lot of times if it falls on like a Wednesday, then you'll take the rest off. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a little bit of the week after. So <laughs> I'm saving up. I'm going big this Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, last year, all of the holidays seemed to fall on weekends. Yeah. And people were... At First, looking at the calendar, I remember people saying this is like the perfect year because all the holidays were on weekends. And then, of course, all the holidays got canceled. But I was just thinking, like, we don't want holidays on weekends. No, I like them Ideally, during the weekdays. they're on Mondays or Fridays or Guess maybe what? even Thursdays. I, I just looked at the calendar. What? Christmas is on a weekend? It's on a Saturday. That's <sighs> Still, awful. when is Christmas Day observed then? Um. Well, it would be... Saturday. <laughs> I mean, we're Just, observing it that all right, day. Think about this. Think about all the money Radio U is saving by not paying us to not work <laughs> to <come in>. on holidays. <laughs> I'm saving up my vacation time. You're lucky to see me this December, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, I can't do the show alone, so. Oh, fine. Fine. I'll just get unpaid because I'm using mine up before then. <laughs> You're like, wow, they have the whole month off. It's great. (laughs) Well, actually, in the show today, there is a lot of holiday talk of Mm -hmm. what happened over July 4th weekend because Mark Zuckerberg did a thing. Um, the CDC did a thing. Yeah, did it. Are we uh, find out how to properly dispose of fireworks? Yeah. After you've shot them all off. Um, Let's see. What else is there? Um, well, actually, that's about all the July 4th talk. I thought there was more. <laughs> I must have left that in. part out. Uh, <laughs> we also talk about the Shark Week is coming up. It is. We talk about the Shark Blimp. We spend some time in Delaware. Yep. And my, fa- I think my favorite part of the show is when we talked about the fight at the Stadium Super Trucks 
race. Oh, the that video. F- yes. You need to watch the video with it. Nothing like watching older men yeah. fight Na- with failed NASCAR drivers <laughs> with their super trucks fighting there outside the truck with a steering wheel <laughs> and a fire extinguisher. That's right. But that one doesn't last long in the video. You see someone else walk up to the guy yeah. and just grab it. Fortunately, like, we're not doing this. He, he got somebody else got involved to calm things down before <laughs> anybody was too hurt. Well, enjoy the podcast for today. Have a wonderful day. Hopefully you have it off. If not, that's fine, too. Yeah, Text and right say there hi. With you. Text 877 to Radio U or message us at Radio U Riot on Facebook. See you next time. Bye, guys. Don't say we didn't warn you. This is the worst of the riot. I don't remember if it was on the air or not, but on Friday... We got started talking about pizza. I we mean, did. that happens pretty much every day, that Nikki was, and I. That was on air. <laughs> was it? It was on air that we were talking about the pizza shapes. No, that was off air. That was off the air, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, because someone had sent in uh, a few pizza recommendations. Yeah. And then off air, we were talking like, hey, and then you brought up, I think it bugs you. Yeah. I have <laughs> the a, different pizza shapes. I have a problem with the square, well, anything that's not a triangle for pizza. Sure. Uh, and... So, of course, uh, I wake up this morning and I see that Nikki has sent me an email with a (laughs) a list defending the different shapes of pizza cutting. It wasn't defending, but I did think it was funny. It was like, oh, first off, everything's listening to what we're talking about. Yep, that's right. How did this happen to come up? (laughs) I know. When the article came to me, I was like, oh, my gosh. Hudson was just talking about what's the different slices of pizza and like, why do some places do that? Now They're really going next level with listening because this article was just written all so, so they were listening to us and then told this guy to write a to write a article about it. And this and is then, now an- your answer. Yeah. So uh, basically, we have this this man who is just defend. Oh, yeah. His name is Jim Jim Ellison, and he is defending the idea that there are different pizza shapes and they have good reasons for all of them. And mm-hmm. and he actually really is incredibly condescending about it. If you actually read, <laughs> he's like, uh, uh, people from the Midwest can go to New York and see a triangle slice of pizza and oh they'll be gosh. just like, and it's just nothing to them. But people from New York or the East Coast come to the Midwest and see a square pizza and go on a diatribe. They never have seen it before. Yeah, and as if this, they can't even eat such a thing. And it's just like, man, I don't think anybody's doing that. I mean, who's going to turn down pizza? I don't care what shape it is, but I'm just telling you that when you have a circular pizza and you cut it into squares or rectangles, you're you. wrong. It's the wrong thing to do for the structural integrity of the pizza. Perhaps certain pizza styles lend itself to certain pizza shapes. Mm-hmm. So triangles are usually New York style, uh, Neapolitan sort of pizzas. Uh-huh. Rectangles, you get Sicilian and Detroit style pizza. Okay. Oh gosh, Detroit style pizza is so good. Well, yeah, you have to, to cut that in a rectangle. Just talk about that, but they're saying that's what you normally get with it. Uh Uh, You know, pizza baked in a pan uh, can create a large volume of pizza. Uh, and so they're saying rectangular <laughs> that's slices. That's what we like, a large offer, volume of pizza. <laughs> offer a lot of crust for Detroit style, so yeah. that's why that tends to go into a rectangle. Uh-huh. Uh, squares are um, St. Louis style, 
Dayton, Columbus, Edge Pizza. Those aren't styles. Well, they're saying styles. Well, but he's just saying that because he's from Ohio. <laughs> I think that's probably it. And then Center Crust Pizza is, is almost like an old school style pizza. I don't even know what that is. Uh, oh, is that the one where it's where you cut it down the middle straight through and then you make little uh, rectangles. Vertically, that yeah. makes one horizontal cut in the center. It creates a long, narrow, rectangular yep. strips of pizza. Each slice has a section of the crust, which is what they want for the end result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, a lot of people don't know this, but that's the worst way to cut a pizza. No. <laughs> Because uh, you, you what you that, get right? is a big flop. Uh, yeah, you actually, that's pick true. It up. You have to use both hands to hold this little tiny piece of pizza. And I know they say, well, at least you get some crust with it, but maybe it's not worth it if it's going to be so floppy. That's right. That's you're just the cheese is going to slide right off when you pick it up. Well, how about this, guys? If anybody wants a link to the article to learn about why pizza slices are the way <laughs> that they are, you can let us know and we'll send it to you. But just know that Hudson is passionate about this because he hates it all. I. I just it bothers me. What what is the point of cut if okay, if it's in a square pan, the obviously it makes sense to cut it in a in a square rectangle. But if it's a circle pizza, why are you hey, cutting you know it you into a square? Be doing? You should be writing this into a rebuttal That's for right. the article for an opinion <laughs> this piece. This is my rebuttal. <laughs> I know we just have to write it this. down. I'll put it in the podcast. <laughs> And we'll send Jim. <laughs> hey, Jim Hudson has uh, some thoughts on your article. Think of it as athleisure for your ears. Radio U's worst of the Riot podcast. Well, traveling is a nightmare. I think the one good thing about the COVID-19 pandemic is it taught us all for at least one year, we don't need the airlines. That's right. We don't need that. We, we were in control at that point. Yep. <laughs> if we just want to sit around and not fly anywhere, we can do it, uh, but only for so long. And then eventually you have to hit up Southwest again. And you're like, <laughs> hey... Hey, Sorry. I'd like to give you way more money than you deserve. <laughs> and they were saying that this past weekend with 4th of July, you know, travel numbers and stuff, mostly driving, but still flying mm-hmm. are back to some of the pre-pandemic numbers that everybody was used to. Yes, they were they were busy once again. And one of the things that is the worst about flying, actually, you know what? That's not true. I think it's bad, but it's just one of the many bad things. And it's kind of down the list is that you can check your bags and who knows when you'll get them? Your you bags, just don't even know. They might go on a better vacation than you are. That's right. They really, <laughs> I mean, you might not, they might take an extra week off yeah. from your life. You know what I mean? But I mean, you start to panic and it is a pain when you're trying to go on vacation and all your stuff was in there. Yep. Yeah, all your stuff and the, the airline rarely offers a lot of help for you. I mean, eventually, I, it happened to me once coming back on an international flight. They eventually... Delivered the my suitcase back to my door. Yeah, uh, long after I had returned from. <laughs> from well, at least you got it, and it wasn't the like when you were just going to vacation. Yeah, because they'll give you like a, a credit to buy stuff. Yeah, but you don't want to do that. No, it's, <laughs> like I mean it depends vacation. what it is. If it's just clothes, then I mean that's one thing. But usually you've got more than just clothes in I your know. bag. So yeah, that was. It, but it was nice that it eventually wound up at my door, who knows how long after. But the idea now is that the Department of Transportation may at least make the airlines pay a price if you pay to get your bags checked mm-hmm. and then you don't get them in a timely matter. Oh. They might have you might actually get a refund from the airline, which is only fair. It's kind of surprising they don't 
do that already. Hudson, but... I never thought about that. You're mm-hmm. paying for the baggage anyways. Yeah. They lose it. So why? Why would you not get your money back? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've right. all just been living. Yeah. We've just been accepting it and be like, okay, well, whenever you think you can get it to yeah, me. Yeah. It's wow, fine. I, I don't need my that. money or anything. I didn't pay pay for a service that you failed to provide. So, <laughs> the, so they're saying that they're considering forcing airlines to refund customers. Don't consider just no, make yeah, that right. for checked baggage fees. If their luggage doesn't show up, that's one thing, mm-hmm. or show up within a reasonable time window. Because they that, have that, that when it comes to like um, the your plane's been delayed. Yeah. If it's delayed past a certain point, you're entitled to all this stuff. Right. They won't tell you that, but right. you, you are entitled to it. You're going to have to get a lawyer to... To find out. You're going to have to Google it first yeah. just to find out what the rules are. But similar things with your luggage. Yeah. And actually, if they do wind up doing this, it's fairly significant that you would... They're saying 12 hours uh, after your flight for a domestic, a domestic flight. flight or 25 hours if it's an international flight. <laughs> so... That's uh, that's that's pretty reasonable. You well, can go twelve hours without some stuff. I want a refund, and I would want uh, suddenly the stuff in my bag is worth a lot more. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> that was all new. I'd clothes. like to get it insured, please. Yes. <laughs> I might have had another laptop in there. Yeah, but I'm glad that they're considering this, and you have to wonder where does it end. Yeah. What el- what other things can they actually make the airlines do that are basic human <laughs> expectations well, just- that uh, they might force upon them you just hope that people learn about this so then that way if you are unfortunately in one of these circumstances you know your rights that you have then and what you're supposed to get back they have a department of transportation phone number you can just call them up oh you know what that is they'll send an agent it's a hotline yes that's it a hotline (laughs) it's the worst of the riot on radio u july 4th is over I imagine there's still some folks out there tonight that are going to be setting off fireworks, especially if they had the day off today. Yeah, you know, it still feels like a party. If you if you sleep enough during the day, I'm sure you can stay up tonight and just use the rest of them up. That's right. But <laughs> much to my excitement, <laughs> whether if you set them off last night, Saturday night, or whatever, you need to properly dispose of them because this is what once you shoot off the fireworks, this is what we're all thinking. How can I safely dispose of these? That's yeah. right. Am I right? Well, I think it's like a two-parter because I don't deal with fireworks as much. Uh-huh. Like, do you, what do you do when you have leftover ones that you haven't set off? Uh-huh. And then what do you do if you Save have- Save those for next year. Can you? Do you just store them in your garage? If you keep them uh, safe? safe? Yeah, okay. I think. And I don't then- know. They'll, they don't expire, right? <laughs> I was afraid they just check, set themselves off. Check the expiration date. <laughs> and then if you do set some off, uh-huh. what do you do with like the leftover? Yeah. parts of the fireworks. I just leave them. You just, I think that's the problem we're not supposed well, to. Well, they're biodegradable, right? It's just paper and cardboard. I don't think it is. Just let them, let them rot away. <laughs> and then you look like that messy person. They'll like, provide not some, even cleaning up your fireworks. They'll provide some useful uh, chemicals to the environment, I'm sure. They say that um, you're supposed to, you are supposed to actually clean them up. Yeah. You're supposed to, this article says, take responsibility <laughs> for them and dispose of them safely. 
so actually, they have. First of all, they say you should check with your local city, town, state, county. Just oh yeah, to find, find out your own local laws to see if they are specific. Because that's again, that's what we're all doing when we shoot off our fireworks. We're adhering to local laws. That's the rule number one. They say that for when you actually set off fireworks, a national average forty two percent more air pollution yep. during the twenty four hour period of July fourth. Uh, compared to a typical typical day without fireworks. Yeah, you can tell. But they say the other environmental problem mm-hmm. is not just setting them off, yep. but also how do you dispose of them when done? Yeah, because they do have all the chemicals that make it so pretty. Yeah. And make it f- shoot up into the air. No, <laughs> that, there's a price to pay for that. And uh, I'm sure that ducks and worms and other wildlife are uh, experiencing all the chemicals that you just... That you're, if you're like me and just thought you could leave your fireworks lying around, do it. the empty shells. They, so, they so, say that first you're supposed to waterlog them. Yeah, by uh, who's doing this? Hey, it's like we, it's okay, for safety. Every time I have a birthday party and there's uh-huh. like candles, I always stick them in water. Yeah, so it's basically the same thing. So yeah. if you've set anything off, you're supposed to have a bucket of water and soak the rest of it for about 15 minutes. Yeah, leave them longer if you want. Some say up to 48 hours, and then you can throw out. Or dispose of in the appropriate Man, way the rest of it. If I soak a firework after it's been shot off in water for 15 minutes uh, and it and it somehow still finds a way to ignite after that. <laughs> How's that possible? Good, more power to it, you know? <laughs> 15 minutes feels like more, more than the, enough. If they're soggy enough, uh, pour the excess water into your toilet yep. and then put the fireworks in a sealable plastic bag. That's a lot of work. Yeah, well, you know, the chemicals <laughs> that are in the water from the fireworks, once they're in the toilet, they can't affect the environment. Well, then you dispose of the fireworks themselves with the bag, but they have to be wet enough but the problem is mm-hmm. those plastic bags are harmful to the environment yeah. so what do we do <laughs> can't we can't do that all. we need to go buy re- reusable bags from the grocery store but not reuse them just use them once to put a, to take out the fire can you works. imagine reusable fireworks and you're Re- just at home like refilling them it looks like you have this whole big illegal operation you know what we're gonna do though we're gonna go to this is a shark tank idea if you watch shark tank Nine out of the ten items on the show are now like environmental things of yeah. how we're all supposed to be environmentally conscious. And I know that that's a good idea, but nobody's doing it. Mm-hmm. So our idea is uh, environmentally conscious disposal bags for fireworks. Oh my. They're flame retardant. <laughs> that's, they're, that's a great idea. Yeah. They're only forty nine ninety nine. You get two. Oh. Uh, and you're going to need... 18 for all the fireworks you shot off. So, so it's a great, that's how we make the money. And uh, somebody's going to invest. Because they're so expensive, though, that's why people use like the grocery store bags, uh-huh. the plastic <laughs> ones. They say once you have the fireworks waterlogged and sealed, dispose of them in your garbage uh, can, never put them in recycling. And you're like, because it could set all the paper on fire. Yeah. No, they just want to remind you that's not recyclable. Yeah, so. that's probably not reusable. They don't want to turn the. Fire, leftover fireworks into a milk carton or whatever. <laughs> it's got to be safe. So those are some of the rules they say. If you have any fireworks left over uh, or from last night, you should stick them in water. Now you can dispose properly mm-hmm. and safely. You might be thinking that this won't be quite as bad the second time around. Well, you'd be greatly mistaken. We're listening to the worst of the riot podcast. Well, while all of us... We're enjoying the fireworks displays set off by our neighbors or our local municipalities. The real fireworks were going down 
at the Stadium Super Trucks Honda 200. Oh, yeah. What's that? Uh, it is a, like, not NASCAR, but some lower level. Uh, I mean, it's Stadium Super Trucks. You aren't familiar? I'm not. Is with it the like truck a, racing series? Oh, yeah, so it is trucks. It's not like it's, um, you know, like when a baseball team has, like, a farm team. It's not like that. It's <laughs> the its Stadium own. Super Trucks would be a I great minor league baseball team, actually. Well, minor league I would totally go racing. to those. <laughs> I want to go see the stadium super trucks in action tonight, taking on the I know you do Akron Rubber Ducks, which is all which is a real minor league baseball team. So it looks like it's uh it's just truck racing. Yes, it's in uh it took place in Lexington, Ohio, mm-hmm. and that was this weekend. They had a whole series of races, not just the trucks, but there was a whole slew of things going down at this raceway in Are Lexington, they Ohio. Yeah, is so that what that's happened? what the fireworks are? Uh, Bo Lamastis. And Bill Hines got into a little scrum, our, our two favorite racers from the Stadium Super Truck Series, uh, where it starts with Lamastis, Brian Lamastis, or Bo Lamastis. He gets so mad that he takes the steering wheel out of his truck and flings it at Bo, uh, Bill Hines oh, like it's in. a Frisbee. And, <laughs> and he runs, of course, it's like the least. The least cool fight move because he wings it at him and then starts running away. He's already at a distance, but, you know, he throws the frisbee and then completely tries to avoid any kind of uh, (laughs) repercussions from that from the other guy from Bill Hines. But it doesn't stop there because the other guy starts kind of chasing after him. Then he smashes his helmet. But uh, then Bo Lamastis. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. But uh, Bo Lamastis comes back. They have to stop him. He's got a fire extinguisher. That he's going to throw? What, I don't know if he's going to throw it, if he's going to try to beat the guy over the head with it, because that would be very illegal. Jeez. Or if he was just going to spray him with it or what. But, man, <laughs> well, it seems all like, the excitement going down at the Stadium Super Truck Series in uh, in Lexington, Ohio. Who it, knew? I don't I don't want to be rude, uh-huh. but it seems like they're a little older in this series. <laughs> uh, so at first, when you watch them fighting, like they're just walking around each other. Uh-huh. You're like, like, oh, okay, well, they're too old to, like, do too much. <laughs> and then when the helmets come off and that you're right, the steering wheel starts to be used. Uh-huh. Like, hey, they're they're trying something. They're not going to actually try to hit each other, like, uh, personal contact. Right. But they're just going to throw everything at and each other. Maybe uh, these are just uh, failed. Like, I don't want to say failed, but they missed out on their dreams of hitting it big in NASCAR. Oh, this and was so it. now some of this frustration is just playing out in the stadium super trucks, Honda 200. I had no where, idea uh, there's even such a thing as stadium super trucks. Yeah. The, the, the series is passing them by their, their car driving career is devolved into a race in Lexington, Ohio. And, some frustrations are are boiling over <laughs> leads to a steering wheel getting thrown, which also doesn't make you feel the best about the car, does it? If you can just so easily rip the steering wheel off oh, no. of a car for, you're driving. For those cars, they come off. You think? Yeah, they always do. They just You for, just I think you bring it with you. But what but what <laughs> It does. I think. But you what take if the it just off. happens in the race? You don't realize you you turn a little too hard. Well, I, I you think, unscrew it, and all of a sudden you're out of control. Maybe that's how this all got started. He got into a, an accident. A safety feature, but yeah, they take the wheels off. Wow, that is. Uh, 
It feels like that's unsafe. <laughs> and what what feature is that for besides to get into a fight and throw the wheel at somebody? I think maybe so you can fit in the car, isn't you think? it? Maybe for some of them. You said all of a sudden you know a lot about stadium super trucks no, racing. No, it's just racing in general. Yeah. No, 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 no. I don't know anything about these super trucks. Uh-huh. Or but you these just have older to break. Gentlemen. Uh-huh. Bo Mastis <laughs> and Bill Hines. <laughs> Had no idea about them, but now their families must be so proud. Oh, yeah. Find more Riot content online, riot.radiou.com. So tomorrow, you go to Chipotle, you can get yourself buy one, get one free. Of, uh, is a BOGO for burritos? Yeah, that's what they should have called it, actually. (laughs) Don't want to, I just want to let you guys know that they've made them so small now that technically the two equals one. Yeah, right. I was going to say, you don't have to, they're saying this is like a friend's deal. Oh, yeah. You don't have to do that just get two for yourself if you really if you're a big chipotle fan but this, you go in you're like you make up like you're lying <laughs> like you have a friend he's like, waiting outside he's on the phone with you he's you're from not, another school yes, in canada not. you wouldn't know him and you're like he's not even on the phone at all you don't even know someone no. you're like i'm just gonna eat both burritos yeah you, you're talking yeah okay what i'll get you, you. oh it? you do want the guacamole uh, yeah, okay hang on, yeah hang on i'll get your definitely my add that on yes uh so they are offering from three Three until close, and we're talking 3 p.m., just to clarify. Three until close tomorrow night. Buy one, get one free on entrees. They have to be purchased in the restaurant. And to take advantage of the deal, when you go to the register, you have to say, Friends BOGO. Oh, (laughs) this is too much. You can't use the app or online ordering for it, which is a shame because some Chipotle (laughs) locations we know don't have enough people working there to make the inside workable. Yeah, this is just a whole whole (laughs) list of things I would never do, even for buy one, get one free. One, order at the register. Uh, Go in. Two, yeah, go inside. Two, say friends BOGO. I would never say that except in this break where we're talking right now. Three, go to Chipotle. Uh, It's all these things I would never, ever do. But they want you to. They really want you to. I think they really try to, they want to stress people coming back into certain places. Um, You know, online ordering just became, that's what everybody does. Yeah. Uh, But they want to do that. Uh, I guess that is nice. Every other place is trying to do everything they can to keep you out of the restaurant Mm -hmm. and and out of talking to somebody. And sometimes I actually do want to actually put my order in to the person. And uh, it's actually easier that way. Occasionally, it depends on what it no, is. No, they get it wrong both ways. They'll yeah. get you wrong if you talk to them or if you go online. Yeah, but if I have to put it in on the kiosk, that's what I hate is the kiosk like in the store. Because then it's like I'm doing the work for them. <laughs> like, you're not paying me minimum wage to type this, to but put in which tacos I want. It does work. All right. Now, I didn't know it was this. This is a, this promotion mm-hmm. is not like a friend's thing. It is meant to support the White House's ongoing efforts to get more Americans vaccinated. Yeah. You do not have to be, va- like, I don't understand the correlation with it. No, you don't I have don't to either. be vaccinated to get the deal. It's not even really about that, but it is a part of the White House stuff with uh, like McDonald's is doing, uh, Panera did over right. this past weekend, and a few other places where I feel like the restaurants are getting a little kickback. Yeah, probably. <laughs> from offering these things, but uh, that's what they're doing for yeah, us. Yeah, you, you do see a lot of places either in saying if you get vaccinated, you can have this for free or this deal or whatever, and that all makes sense, or at least where they're I guess some places are making cups that say, get vaccinated. Oh, that's a McDonald's one, yeah. Uh, But with Chipotle, it's just like, 
Come in and get a free buy one, get one. And by the way, it's because of the White House. How is that related? <laughs> How they're is just it? making it work. I mean, I guess get vaccinated, but you don't have to for this deal. So, so. it's tomorrow from 3 p.m. until closing. If you want the BOGO for Chipotle, you have to go in. You have to say friends BOGO when yep. you're at the register. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it. That's all you got to do. It almost feels like maybe they have a quota to meet of if they want the White House, if they want the tax breaks or whatever they get for being oh, a part of so for being a part of the vaccine deal. They have to do certain offers, and so this one is like the bare minimum. They're like, we know nobody's going to come in and say friends bogo, but, but we technically made the deal. <laughs> the equivalent of someone's lint collection. This is the worst of the riot podcast. Back before the pandemic, when you heard from the CDC, a lot of times it was kind of fun. It was usually for fun things. It wasn't like Funsies? anything too serious. <laughs> it, it was, was norovirus. It, it was helpful reminders, but they weren't especially like you didn't feel like they were really imminent dangers to your life. It's sure. just like, remember to wash your hands if you're out camping or something, you know, and it's just like, okay, we will. It was just lighthearted kind of stuff. It was very much like, okay, mom, okay, dad. Right. But it wasn't anything. Then they had, you know, obviously during COVID time, um, a lot more uh, things to say. Yep. It became a lot more serious <laughs> and we actually had to listen and pay attention for a while. And but, now we're back to uh, the other things that they used to also include. Yes. they. It's taking a turn back to this is this is the turning point this is when we know the pandemic's over because we can go back to laughing at the cdc's lighthearted reminders that we don't actually need like this one <laughs> they tweeted out don't swim or let your kid swim is sick with diarrhea one person with diarrhea can contaminate the entire pool learn more ways to keep you and those you care about healthy uh, we did. That's we already learned that one. I think we all know that yeah, we don't need diarrhea. That we don't want diarrhea in the pool. But I, what really sets this one? What's apart. really hitting home? If you haven't seen, is the gif that they made with it, where a little girl. It's, it's like, like a family in the pool. Yep. And uh, the little girl sliding down into her daddy's arms, and as she goes down the slide. A brown trail is left behind her. It's awful to look at. It just keeps going and going and yep. going. And then, uh, the, remember, and then it only takes freezes. one person. Okay, yes, one only person. One person on the slide with diarrhea, and all of a sudden, nobody wants to swim anymore. Can't we just go to the pool and not worry about this stuff? I mean, I know that's what's going not on. Not a public probably, pool. You can't. But you don't want to get sick. And no. you don't want to, oh my gosh, to find out if that's why you got sick, because someone was sick in the pool <laughs> yeah. for that, I wouldn't tell anybody. Like, that's, we're just going to keep some private. You know, in some <laughs> other cultures, it's very, uh, it's not only do you not swim sick, yeah. you take a shower before you get in the pool to oh, yeah. make sure you clear off any potential bacteria you might not know about or whatever. Maybe we need to get to that point and we're for here, the public pools. Well, we have the showers outside, but people just use them afterwards yeah, to wash right. off from the chlorine. They wash the chlorine smell. Listen, <laughs> if I don't, it'll change my hair color. Like, you have to wash <laughs> yeah. after, but you're supposed to wash technically going in, too. And if you're sick, um, you're just not supposed to go swimming. I just hate hearing about all this stuff. I, it's I, so gross. I love how the first comment on the Twitter uh, post is, they didn't say we can't pee in the pool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, CDC. What are you doing here? Yeah, there, there, uh, there's a line, and uh, 
And if you uh, don't, as long as you don't have diarrhea in the pool, you're not crossing it. It's totally fine. Oh, it's actually, you know what? Stop reading the rest of the Twitter replies because <laughs> that is, there. there's a lot of people with some personal stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like this one. I hadn't planned on uh, going to the bathroom in a pool until I saw this cute gift. <laughs> it's like when you tell people not to, yeah. they're going to do it then anyway. Now we're, we're going to be infecting the children with diarrhea just so we can recreate uh, the gift in yeah, real life. I that was the whole thing. It's awful. You just can't tell us not to do anything. It is just A plus work that they put together this uh, this artwork for this announcement that that we all knew already. Well, we, CDC, congratulations on a fantastic campaign. Job well done. Good You've job. really raised, raised awareness. I want to know the uh, advertising company that got this whole yep. entire package uh-huh. that they got to do. And I want to know how many meetings it was. How much did it cost? Yep. The CDC, which technically wouldn't that be... How much did we all pay uh-huh. to be reminded if you're sick to not go in the pool? They, uh, you know what? They did a great job. It was worth every penny because now we're all reminded. We know <laughs> not to let anybody with diarrhea into the pool. And now every time I look at the pool, I'm just going to see this little <laughs> yeah. girl going down the slide, sick as can be. And you're, and it's going to remind you. Wait, do I have diarrhea? Should no, I be no. going swimming? <laughs> Anyone can under-promise and over-deliver, except these two. The Riot Radio U. While we're on the subject of strange, unnecessary social media posts, why don't we talk about Mark Zuckerberg? Did you see his (laughs) over the weekend? Dude, that guy can't do anything without people really laying into him. And I think with this one... Um, it might be deserved. (laughs) Like at first when I saw it, I thought it's, it's, you know, weird, but it's not the worst. But if Mark Zuckerberg does anything, everyone online hates him. So he would be, I know he owns Facebook and Instagram, but I really feel like he would be better served if he just didn't use them. You know, like he doesn't just because he owns them doesn't, doesn't mean, mean he has to. Well, he does this. Uh, what is it called? The, it's not surfing, but it's this sort. It's this board that kind of floats through the water. Yeah, I don't. I don't know exactly what that is either. I I've seen him. Uh, like his feet are strapped in, mm-hmm. and it, it has a motor or something because it's just propelling through the water. And and uh, no, it's no motor. I, it just goes through the currents. And then stuff. how does it float like that? Though uh, it's just the magic of the water. And the know. money that you I have if you can afford it. If he's doing that without a motor or anything, I guess there's something impressive about this. It but is. It he's, is. He's surfing on this, it appears to be a lake, I guess, somewhere. And uh, he's carrying an American flag. And then he starts, like, uh, pushing up and down like you would do on this thing. But it almost looks like he's pretending to flap like an eagle to me. <laughs> Like he's trying to be extra American, and it play and the song playing is uh, "Take Me Home, Country Roads" by John Denver. I think that's what people get annoyed about the most. It's it's a real like he's he feels like he's almost going full dad mode in this, doesn't he? So? Like yeah. he's trying to be uh, your dad. At, he's already got a few in him. And all of a sudden, he's out there just flapping away, carrying the American flag, and you don't know whether to 
to laugh or cheer or cry. You don't really know exactly how to take it. Well, it looks like everybody's also making fun of him because uh, not too long ago he was, I think he was also doing this surfing thing because I guess when you have extra time. Yeah. When you have What's lots he supposed of people, to do? Uh, he was wearing all this sunscreen yeah. on his face uh-huh. and everybody started making fun of him for that. And it's, you know, kind of similar where no matter what he does, if he's photographed, people make fun of it. It's, it's funny to me and I enjoy seeing over and over again, how just because you're a billionaire does not in any way mean you know what is cool. (laughs) Because (laughs) at at the end of the day, I just see him out there and he had somebody film this and he was like, yeah, that's cool. Post it. Well, everybody, the response seemed to be, okay, it seemed like he was trying to act normal. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, it's fine. If you saw someone else do this as a post, you wouldn't be as mocking. It's just because it is. It's just because it is Mark Zuckerberg that you yeah. are. It's it's all and it's just all of it together. It's who he is and all the things he's doing and the take me home country road. It's just the and it all storm. comes together to just make it. Yeah, just like so many things he does in the uncanny valley of weirdness. <laughs> you don't you like know? it? No, don't like it at all. It, it is. So I think Hudson's not following Mark Zuckerberg on anything. No, I'm not. I wouldn't have seen this if it wasn't for the news. It was bad enough the first time around, but now it's worse. Don't believe us? Just keep listening. You'll find out soon enough. This is the Worst of the Riot Podcast. Did you see the shark blimp floating throughout the country uh, over the weekend? If not, it might be coming to an area near you soon. I don't know why, but I want to see the shark blimp. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I always think it's a it's a weird minor excitement when you see a blimp because it's just kind of rare. Yeah, you're somewhat like, hey, rare. You get the Goodyear blimp, but normally I think that's the only one we ever see. Yeah, I don't know. There's there's occasionally I'll find one, and then it's just you kind of. It makes you question, like, what's going on? Is there a special event? <laughs> is there a golf tournament? Yeah. <laughs> That's you, isn't that what it's usually for? It yeah, is. it's so You're totally, totally in, right on that. In our area. But for this, it looks like uh, Discovery um, uh, changed a Goodyear blimp to the Shark Week blimp. And yep. it looks like a big shark. And that's going to be touring the country through, I think, July 20th. Yeah. So it spent the weekend... Uh, Delaware got it uh, over the 4th of July this past weekend. Yeah, I was trying to find a schedule to see if you can see when it's coming to your area and yeah. like where exactly it will be. All we know, or at least all I could find was, it initially went from the Outer Banks in the Carolinas to Virginia, and then it made its way to Delaware over the weekend. So now I don't know where it's going from there. I assume it's going out... To the west now. Yeah, so maybe, I don't know. Maybe it'll head over there. So if you see the Discovery blimp, that's all in promotion because Shark Week is going to start on Monday. Not it, this Monday, but next week. What's scarier, seeing a shark in the ocean or seeing one in the air? Uh, I think we know the honest that truth would be, be a, in the ocean. That might be uh, <laughs> one of the new episodes in the Shark Week thing. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is all part of it. To If to, I'm in a plane, yeah. maybe then seeing the blimp. Shark Week, I haven't checked in on it for several years, but I do remember that uh, it, it continually seemed to get more and more uh, ridiculous yeah. as the years have gone by to, you know, where it used to just be like, look at all this footage of great white attacks 
And eventually you could see all of that on YouTube. Sure. So then they had to up the ante to make shows where it's like, could a shark fly and what happens if it could? Are you saying the, what was it, the swimmer guy, Michael Phelps, when he was like racing a shark? Yeah, he raced a shark. That's not a shark. Yeah. And then there's like robot sharks involved and Sharknado. They probably did a thing where like, could that be real? It, you know, the, the, just that kind of stuff is what I feel Shark Week turned into with a few shark attacks along the way. Well, I used to love Shark Week when I was young, yeah. but then I realized when things became so streaming that they would just air things that were around for years. Uh-huh. So it wasn't really, I remember the disappointment of like, wow, that's that's like five years that's old. That's right. When and you I, used to see new. it as a kid, yeah. you didn't know. And a, a year and a, a year is a long enough time to make you forget what you saw last Shark Week. And you realize there's only so many shark documentaries. But I do have Discovery Plus now, and uh-huh. I I did see over the weekend like you could just you know watch all the older Shark Week stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe I'll I'll peek in next week and see what they have. I think I think I'll know we've made it if we ever get a blimp. That's that's real advertising right there. Well, it gets the eyeballs. Yeah, that's right. People <laughs> people are going to be looking up and they're going to be wondering what's going on. And then they'll realize it's the riot is what's going on. Ooh, we could have that. Yeah. Or if, um, what's the other thing? If we decide to maybe work with the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Oh, yeah. That's the only two <laughs> things I feel like you could get some extra promotion talking about. Skywriter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a good one, too. We've got to get some creative, uh, creative work to get the word of the riot out there. And uh, also just a heads up, our upcoming fall fundraiser will be uh lots longer than a little extra because <laughs> hudson asked for blimp money oh how expensive could it be <laughs> oh i'm sure it's a lot you're buying that whole thing and the gas right now well, well just, what does it do maybe it's electric it's good for the environment <laughs> i don't think that thing's anything good for it's it. it's discovery channel they they would definitely take very good care of the environment of the so blimp? well let's I buy this them. when it's done with its promotion that's right second hand, we'll a second hand blimp for the riot you're basically listening to a real-time cringe compilation. This is The Riot on Radio U. I have information here, uh, and it's up to you how you use it, but I have information on how you can fake a positive COVID-19 test. And you might be thinking, <laughs> why? why would I want to <laughs> fake a positive test? Well, maybe you have to come into work on Independence Day observed, and you don't <laughs> want to. Uh, too late for us, and yeah. I think too late for others. But uh, this no, is... there's no one I'd rather spend my Independence Day Aww, observed yay. with than you. I mean, everybody else, you might get the morning off, but yeah. uh, this would have been good to know. But I'm sure there's other holidays or days off you can take there, if you, oh, if there you need is. a positive COVID I've test. I scheduled them, <laughs> whether you know about it or not. No. Uh, <laughs> so apparently, if you have one of the, the I, I think it depends on the kind of COVID test, and you're going to have to be clever on this one because apparently this is happening, but I don't know exactly the scenario of where you'll be able to do this. But if you use soda or certain types of juice mm-hmm. uh, to substitute, I guess, for your blood or your uh, swab sample, yeah, you can fake a positive COVID-19 test. Now, can I tell you, when you first told me about the faking the test, Uh I thought, like, in my mind, oh, so we need to put soda up our nose. (laughs) And so then when they swab it. But this is when you do the test on your own. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you put soda up your nose. Will it also work if you're doing an in-person test? Yeah. 
Uh, and you know what? It's not an idea or not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, to and try I think, and see. I think there's some where do they swab? I know they usually swab your nose and that was the thing where they had to stick it way up your nose. But wasn't there some where they could just like swab your mouth? There was like inside your cheeks and stuff. Yeah. But that's not the ones people. So if you really <laughs> drank a lot of Coke, you maybe <laughs> you just coat the inside of your mouth. So basically it's not the, even that different from normal. It's the LFT's at home test. Uh-huh. Uh, they say if you because everybody was wondering it became it's not a trend but like everybody was saying hey this is a way for you to get a positive covid test yeah um but not actually have covid and so they tested it they did a few drops of soda and then it looks like orange juice and stuff and it appears a positive can happen if you do that yeah i I mean i could get into all of the science because i read through and tried to understand and the truth is i don't exactly i don't think i could relay the information and to you enough to where i could tell you all the science about why it works but it works and it's they think it's they're not even exactly sure but they think it's something to do with the acidity of the because items if you have coke or orange juice both very very high acidity to them so it's something about that that makes the test appear positive even though it's not so there's an idea for you um i feel that if you're getting an at home like self-administered covid test anyways you're like why why even need to fake it you're already at home um i think it was more like challenge accepted uh-huh. uh, that sort of thing because they you know you could just figure out a way yeah uh, this seems different too they keep referencing like younger like high school uh, yeah. Not even into college, whereas for a lot of people, if COVID, you know, you have the test might affect during the summertime more if you're working mm-hmm. uh, since summer, you know, classes are gone. Yeah. It uh, also but seems- if not, in emergency situations, if, you need a, <laughs> if, if you're still being offered or if you still qualify for the days off, then yeah, for maybe it, you just want to get the paid time off. We didn't even consider that really. Exactly. You, if you have an at home test that they'll let you do, then they say you can get a fake fault, a fake positive. Yeah. If if you use uh, soda or orange juice. Well, now the information is out there for how you can do the home test and make it look a positive. So now it's just up to you to translate that information into how you could fake an in-person test. It's a lot You're of work. You have to start working on that, and I'm sure somebody will get it. You keep going through the testing line, and they're yep. like, hey, haven't we seen you already, Hudson? What are you back in for? I think I have it again. It's a medical anomaly. And all you have is nothing but open soda cans yep. like in your car. You're like, no, try it now. Let me see. You just snort <laughs> snort the Coke. Okay, that that's, doesn't work. What you're about to hear will live on the internet forever. Sorry, internet. The worst of the riot podcast. Gramrich Hanspal. He's 52 years old. He lives in Long Island, and he's lived there rent-free for 20 <laughs> years now. I thought, like, squatter stuff, because squatter stuff became super popular also during COVID uh-huh. uh, because of just laws of not being able to kick someone out. Mm-hmm. And people who were squatting in apartments or houses uh, took advantage of that uh-huh. <laughs> to where I could see that being a a law that would help someone who was truly in need. Yeah. But there had been a lot of people who were already abusing squatter stuff before COVID. Oh, yeah. And they just kept going with it. Yeah. But I didn't think squatting was like something that happened 20 years ago. <laughs> I thought it was more like a recent trick that oh, people learned. People have been squatting since the dawn of time. <laughs> we had no idea. That's <laughs> uh, it's how we all got started living where we did, believe it or not. <laughs> Your so, first squat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this guy has been squatting for 20 years 
uh, and living at the same apartment, uh, the same home in Long Island. What he did was he made a mortgage payment 23 years ago, and that was the only payment he made. So he defaulted and it was foreclosed upon, but he has been using the courts and uh, filing for bankruptcy and claiming and uh, just using all this legal mumbo jumbo Every time. to where he's never actually been evicted and kicked out of the house. And so he's been living there for 20 years now. So he had one payment that he made. He bought the house in uh, 98 for $290,000. Mm-hmm. So then the ways that he would get around it is he would he filed four lawsuits and claimed bankruptcy seven times during that. Uh-huh. So bankruptcy courts have an automatic stay rule where if you file for bankruptcy and you're going through all those lawsuits, you're allowed to stay in the house until it's finalized. Uh-huh. But when you keep filing, yeah. then you're... 20 years from now you keep going and he got like a year and a half during COVID of extra time so he was supposed to go to court uh, last Wednesday I believe or Uh it might have been this week they were planning on it but this is what he did again he got a new lawyer yep so that's the trick. Just at the right time. Yep. So now the new lawyer can say, hey, I'm new to this case. I need more time. That is what continues this court hearing, and he gets more time in the house. Yeah, and uh, it's just one of those things. To me, at this point, 20 years, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. So what's that thing when like you're with someone, but you're not married but it's been so long. It's common like law. common law. So yeah. do you get the same, like you've been in the house for so long? Like, is it your common law house? Then it just belongs to your yeah, family like, eventually. Like, congratulations, you made it this long. I think the real estate company that owns the house would Wouldn't beg to me? differ on that one. <laughs> they <laughs> bought it and they thought they'd just get to have it. And it yeah. uh, turns out that uh, they're not getting, they're getting more trouble than the place is probably even worth. And for him, it's it's totally one of those situations where... I don't know. I guess you could say it's a work smart, not hard situation. Cause, but think about all the money that he must be spending on these lawyers and all the time he must be spending to go through all this court stuff. It's instead the cost of just paying. Of the yeah. The, you would think, <laughs> I don't know. Mortgages are a lot. So. Well, he's saying that this is the trick that he does. He'll hire a lawyer the day before the judge is set to hear the case. Uh-huh. So it's not like he's using the lawyer to actually do a case. Yeah. He's starting it very early in the beginning where maybe it's like a retainer fee or something. Mm. Three different owners have tried to kick him out um, since 2000. He's managed to avoid eviction because he'll take all three of the owners. He'll just keep filing legal actions to prevent them. So then the courts just keep waiting yeah. and waiting. So 20 years he's been squatting in what was his home anyways. Yeah. He's uh, he's outlawed the lawyers. I wonder if he is a lawyer. You think? Uh, no, does it I say what think, he does? I just think he learned. Maybe he watched. A, well, he's got a lot of time in his house, yeah. so maybe he he just watches a lot of shows about it. <laughs> he's That's watched all. He, he's he watched learns. all the Judge Judy's. That's right. So he knows how to handle this thing. Uh, I again at this point, I just say kudos to him. You know, <laughs> if he's willing to put in all that work to avoid paying his mortgage and keep living in this little house, then. Uh, you know, more power to him. Oh, it looks like he, does he hoard too? Like he's got a lot. If you scroll all the way down, you can see bedroom pictures and stuff. Oh, oh, that's nothing. You sure? I you think know. that's hoarding? You've watched hoarders. I know, but Usually they, like... there's buckets, <laughs> there's buckets and piles of things. There's boxes and 
waste, human waste everywhere, and and then the TV. Somehow they still always want to find a way to watch the no, TV. This guy, you can see the light coming in from the windows. That's I, not a hoarder. I feel like that's the start of hoarding right there. Well, maybe by the time he kick, gets kicked out of there. Is it healthy eating so many snacks, chips, and Oreos every single morning? No, of course not. But they do it for you. Too many guys got their stomach for this line of work. That's real love. It's the riot on Radio U. Put that chicken down. Stop. You don't know where it's been. (laughs) What's worse is they tell you this after your 4th of July, like chicken-a-thon over the weekend. And you're like, I really hope I wasn't eating any of this stuff. Now we know what Nikki did over the weekend. Chicken-a-thon. You have chicken or like hot dogs. But, Uh um, you know, if you go to a barbecue, they usually provide chicken as an alternative if you don't want the other stuff. You don't just come <laughs> up with a name like Chicken-a-thon unless you've had a Chicken-a-thon. Hey, I did make wings last night. Yeah? I did. I uh-huh. did, but um, I did not. None of them were Tyson, so I think I'm okay. Okay, you're safe. This is uh, the CDC has issued a food safety alert, and Tyson Foods is recalling about 8.5 million pounds of frozen cooked chicken products. Because of possible listeria contamination. I've heard listeria before and it, you know, we all kind of make fun of like, oh, you get like a sick stomach and stuff. But they say listeria can actually be really serious because it's when the bacteria has spread beyond your gut Mm -hmm. to other parts of your body. Um, So it's like you don't want listeria is even worse than everything else. Yeah. You want to make sure that you treat this one seriously. That's right. This one, uh, if you've had... Either or if you have in your freezer any Tyson's chicken, you might want to take a look at that. And then also uh, it includes some of the Tyson branded products that would be for restaurants such as Jets Pizza, Casey's General Store. I don't know what that is. Marco's Pizza. Never had it. And a little Caesars. I've already gotten sick there before. Right. (laughs) Maybe it was from this. You just—it's—it's it's a long-standing thing at Little Caesars. Well, you forget uh, when they do recalls. So it's Tyson's food. So they're saying they're chicken, but Mm. it's not just what you're buying in the store. They also provide chicken for a lot of products. Yeah, for all kinds of places. Hospitals, nursing facilities, restaurants, and schools could be linked to this uh, listeria outbreak. Yeah, so maybe just uh, maybe just go with the the burgers, the ground beef for the rest of the week. You mean no uh, no more uh, no. <laughs> chicken Put stuff? Put an end to the chicken-a-thon. <laughs> I re- need to actually have that when things are safer. Yeah, chicken-a-thon <laughs> when we can have uh, verifiably safe chicken. <laughs> we can do the after show, and if you want to bring a grill, you can bring all the chicken you want. <laughs> mm. You know, listeria probably just cooks out anyway, so it's it'll be fine. fine. The riot. This hits a little close to home, and it's something that uh, that we've all been thinking about for years, have we? Ever since Amazon unveiled the Alexa, and you have to address it as calling it Alexa, it's like, well, wait, there's actual people named Alexa. I, we didn't have that until, you know, if you listen in the evenings with Radio yeah. U, uh, she goes by Lex now, but uh, she used to go more by Alexa with uh-huh. JR, and then she had to change hers because of it being too confusing was, with Alexa. And it was literally setting off people's Alexa devices <laughs> if they JR were listening to Radio U yep. at night, and JR would say, Alexa, <laughs> and like we're doing right now. But it's not our fault. That is Amazon's fault, isn't it? That they chose a name that people actually have. Well, I feel like they'd have to go really obscure. Like, I've known a few Alexas. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a name that, 
no one would have. Uh-huh. But it isn't a as common as, yeah. as other ones. And, but like what would they go with then? Uh well, Apple I mean, I know there was a few people that had the Siri name. No one really. But that was not. See, Apple figured it out. They found. You love Apple, Nikki. I do. So you should be saying, you should just be championing. This is a way of Apple distinguishing how much better they are than Amazon. Except you also love Amazon, don't you? Well, I do. That's that's it, basically. There's the two, that and Costco. <laughs> Throw Costco in, you're like, all right, that's Nikki right there rolled into one. And Bears. Yep, that's it. That's it. That's Nikki. <laughs> well,. There's a whole article here about how Alexas want their names back, Mm -hmm. and I wish we could get our Alexa's point of view on this. I'm pretty sure it's that she would like her name back, yeah, because Amazon, uh, like they knew what they were doing. They when they're putting this out there, and uh, the article is kind of funny though because it's it's kind of laying out the idea of this is making people accustomed to ordering Alexas around. Oh, actually in this article, it is interesting. They said that uh, when the BBC looked into some of this stuff, Mm -hmm. that uh, there's been parents who have changed their children's name and switched schools because, Mm -hmm. especially when you're younger or adults can bully too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everybody at any age can bully. But they say that um, a lot of people with the name Alexa can be bullied or it's just always brought up. You're not known as Alexa the person. Right. You're immediately thought of and made fun of like you are Alexa, the Amazon device. Right. And that leads to the do my bidding if I say your name. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and we're all just we've all been through this. If you have a certain name that maybe is very identifiable with Mm -hmm. one. Like uh, we had a guy text in. This is just the example that comes to mind because he texted in when we talked about it. His name was James Taylor. Yeah. And so everybody, James Taylor's an old musician. People would just make fun of him, like be, you know, come up with James Taylor jokes whenever they see him uh, or get to know him. And that's what people do with Alexa's and they do it with everything. Uh, but Amazon still could have chosen a different name that wasn't so common. But then, you know, there'd just be the one person that's like Amazon chose the name uh, Riff Raff, and there's yeah. one person named Riff Raff. <laughs> Come on! I know, you this can't be ruining perfect. my life. They say you can, you know, change your uh, wake word instead of Alexa. You can change it to mm-hmm. something else, but... Well, why should every- I change? They're the ones who suck. Well, for everybody else, though, <laughs> they say that it is a, you know, you can choose your device trigger uh, name, uh, but for a lot, and this article just covers a lot of other um, like C-3PO, uh, like other things throughout history that have had a name mm-hmm. that just takes over what it is. Yeah. And um, you either make up a name or you're a part of the name and you hate it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure that uh, if Amazon had come up with a different, like just made something up for Alexa, we yeah. probably would have hated it, you know? Well, then we, it they sounds, just made up a word. Then it sounds you know, dumb at first, but right. um, it's not like they're going to change it now. It's been too long. No, it's been too long. So nobody can be named Alexa ever again. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry it's to our Amazon's Alexa. world and we're just living in it. <laughs> or you're like her, everybody changes to Lex. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Worst of the Riot podcast. Oh, no. I miss it. Do it again. You can hear us live every day on the Radio U Network through the Radio U app or at riot.radiou.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter.
On this Independence Day, the nation celebrates its reopening by gathering in record numbers how Americans across the country are marking their independence from COVID. And President Biden hosting a big party on the White House lawn with essential workers and military families. His goal to have 70% of Americans vaccinated by today not yet met. Now the White House ramping up efforts to get shots in arms and protect the unvaccinated from the dangerous Delta variant. Breaking news rescue crews make way for demolition teams to take down what's left of the collapsed Surfside condo building as a tropical storm approaches. Relatives of the missing victims devastated. The search was paused. Pope Francis hospitalized after intestinal surgery. The pontiff himself asking for prayers tonight. Our new series priced out. Buyer's remorse. A warning for new home buyers before you rush to get that dream house. We'll look at some of the pitfalls in the hot housing market. And on this 4th of July, American composers reimagining the iconic America the Beautiful and sending a message. This is NBC Nightly News with Kate Snow. Good evening and happy 4th of July. It is always a significant holiday, but this year, Independence Day is infused with even more meaning. Today, Americans from coast to coast are feeling safe enough to gather and celebrate side by side, many emerging from months of isolation. President Biden celebrating the progress the country has made in its pandemic response, while noting there's still a lot of work ahead. But in this moment, on this day, there is joy. We'll go to the White House in just a moment, but we begin with Kathy Park in New York. Tonight, a long-awaited celebration, more than a year in the making. Looking forward to the, to the fireworks and celebrate with more people than we did last year, instead in our house. New York, one of the darkest cities during the height of the pandemic, will be lit up with fireworks launched from five barges in the East River, an electrifying light show to honor everyday heroes. We've all suffered pretty hard over the last year, and this is just really an awesome time for us to celebrate. On South Carolina's shore, a high-flying salute. In Boston, a patriotic parade. It was amazing. God bless America, this is great. Gatherings getting back to normal after many missed memories. People are excited and they're happy to see other people. So they're like, oh, hey, remember me, I'm back. But even with Independence Day free of most COVID restrictions, the Delta variant is holding on. As cases rise in Los Angeles County, health officials advise the masks go back on when indoors, even for the vaccinated. Warnings mixed with welcome signs of progress as we mark America's birthday with a bang. And Kathy joins me live ahead of the fireworks in New York tonight. Are there any concerns, Kathy, about people gathering in large crowds again? Well, Kate, many people say that they're actually not worried about the virus. In fact, they're just excited to take in such an iconic event in person. And also reassuring to them is that more than 70% of New Yorkers have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Kate? All right, Kathy Park, thanks. And you can watch the Macy's 4th of July fireworks spectacular tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern here on NBC. President Biden is also throwing a party tonight, a celebration of America's reopening and a chance to honor those who fought on the front lines of COVID. But it comes as the administration falls short of its goal of vaccinating a large number of Americans and amid concerns about the dangerous Delta variant. Monica Alba is at the White House. 
The White House tonight opening its backyard for a summer bash, where President Biden will mark how far the country has come while stressing the pandemic is not over yet. Hosting a crowd of a thousand essential workers and military families to declare independence in more ways than one. Over the past year, we've lived through some of our darkest days. Now I truly believe I give my word as a Biden, I truly believe we're about to see our brightest future. Mixed with some anxiety over the Delta variant, now responsible for about a quarter of all new infections, according to CDC data. The overwhelming proportion of people who get into trouble are the unvaccinated, which is the reason why we say this is really entirely avoidable and preventable. The White House planning to double down on its efforts to vaccinate more people before the fall though no new goals have been set. People still have questions about the vaccine, the safety and the efficacy. So we need to answer those questions. The challenge captured in an ABC News Washington Post poll showing 30% of Americans are unlikely to ever get the shots, despite the increased risk from the highly transmissible strain. While the country fell short of the president's goal to get 70% of adults at least one dose by today, 20 states did meet the target and almost 50% of the public is fully vaccinated. But an open question remains, whether Americans will have to get boosters. Either way, the White House says it's ready. We will have the supply and the distribution if it's determined that booster shots are in fact uh, needed. President Biden touting progress tonight as COVID cases and deaths have fallen by more than 90% since January, allowing for large celebrations to take place this holiday weekend. But he also acknowledged the more than 600,000 lives lost from the virus so far, urging all who are still waiting to get vaccinated to do so as soon as possible. Kate? All right, Monica Alba at the White House. Now to the other big story tonight in Surfside, Florida. Plans are underway to demolish the part of the condo building that is still precariously standing. Authorities want to bring it down before a storm hits, fearing the weather could further destabilize the complex. Our Vaughn Hilliard is there. In just a few hours, demolition crews intend to implode the remainder of the Champlain Tower. The decision to knock down the structure, a risky move as more than 100 remain unaccounted for. But with Tropical Storm Elsa barreling towards Surfside, an urgency before the building collapses itself. How much assurance were you given by this demolition company that this would go as planned? We have extreme confidence in, in his methodology. This... Uh, company that is doing the demolition has done this safely in other areas within a, a defined footprint. One of those areas, Oklahoma City's federal building in 1995. The demolition planned here just 11 days after the initial collapse. The structure is strategically uh, drilled and explosives are, are, are positioned in structural members that they, their engineers have determined that will bring down this building in a, in a predictive manner. In a controlled area. In a controlled area, right. correct. Search teams standing by, looking to resume operations after the demolition. But it's a race against time. The storm's path slated to blast Surfside's shores with wind gusts and rain within 24 hours. There's a lot of families and friends that are still hoping to recover their loved ones. Including Betty Metzgelski, her close friend Graciela Caterosi, among the recovered, along with her seven-year-old daughter. The rest of the family still unaccounted for. In Graciela's apartment was herself, her daughter, her sister Andrea, and her parents. And as far as I know, only Graciela and her daughter have been recovered. The other three still remain to be found. 
so sad. Vaughn, how do, do we know when the demolition is going to take place? Kate, we're awaiting an update from officials on that exact timing any minute now, but the expectation is that that demolition will take place tonight. Fireworks are officially canceled here in the city of Surfside. There's only one focus tonight, and it's a tough one for this community to grapple with. Kate? All right, Vaughn Hilliard, thank you. Overseas now to Afghanistan, where the Taliban appears to be gaining ground once again, even before U.S. troops completely leave the region. Richard Engel reports. Even before U.S. troops finish their withdrawal from Afghanistan, America's old enemies are making a comeback. The Taliban, the group that sheltered Osama bin Laden, allowing him to plan 9-11, is on a major offensive, capturing around 150 Afghan military outposts in the last two months, including nearly a dozen this weekend. In most cases, Afghan security forces, trained and funded by the United States, surrendered without firing a shot, allowing the Taliban to seize weapons. But one group holding the line is the Afghan commandos, the elite troops trained by American special ops are now carrying out around 100 operations a day. About 90% of the combat missions, according to their commanding general. We are committed. We will fight them and we will push them back. But the Taliban's biggest gain so far appears to be psychological. The world watched this week as the U.S. left Bagram Air Base quietly, leaving in stealth for their security. The American withdrawal is a huge morale boost for the Taliban and all Islamic extremists, presenting the U.S. pullout as a God-given victory. Several Afghan officials tell NBC News al-Qaeda, ISIS and other radicals are returning to Afghanistan to witness and take part in what they're calling the final victory, the Taliban pushing out the world's greatest superpower. Once again, Afghanistan is becoming a magnet for al-Qaeda. They're coming here. They are coming and Afghanistan will be a graveyard for them as well. The terrorist threat is already rising. This week, Afghan airport security located a musical instrument packed with explosives designed to blow up a flight to Kabul. Al-Qaeda and other foreign extremists are coming to Afghanistan through Pakistan, the same route Al-Qaeda used before 9-11. Kate? Richard, thank you. Late word from Italy tonight. Pope Francis is out of surgery for an intestinal issue. The Vatican says he's doing well after a scheduled operation. Molly Hunter now with the latest on the pontiff's condition. Tonight, 84-year-old Pope Francis is recovering after what the Vatican says was a scheduled surgery. In a statement, the Holy See press office says Francis reacted well on Sunday after going under general anesthesia for intestinal surgery. The Holy See adds he was diagnosed with symptomatic diverticular stenosis of the colon, or narrowing of the colon. It is a major surgery, and it's going to take him longer to recover. But the surgery marks a rare health issue for the pontiff, who is robust, generally healthy, often holding meetings six days a week. E sono lieto di annunciare... Hours earlier, the Pope held his usual Sunday blessing, announcing a foreign trip in September, not mentioning the surgery. But last Sunday, he asked for support, saying, pray in a special way. The Pope needs your prayers. This is Pope Francis's first known hospital visit since taking office in 2013. We know he suffers from sciatica and decades ago as a young man had part of one lung removed. And tonight, Italian President Sergio Mattarella wishing the Pope a speedy recovery, saying all Italians are with your holiness in these hours. Molly Hunter, NBC News.
Still ahead tonight, why so many who rushed to buy homes during the pandemic are now saying buyer beware. Also, the fireworks explosion that had beachgoers scrambling for safety. After the pandemic started and people were stuck inside working and learning from home, a lot of Americans rushed to buy bigger houses or move out of urban areas. Some bought new homes without ever seeing them in person. Now those quick decisions are leading to some buyer's remorse. Stephanie Rule has the first report in our week-long series, Priced Out. Desiree Davis is a first-time home buyer in Canton, Ohio. This is our second-story bathroom. Um, Obviously, we haven't been able to use it. And since she's moved in? This is the kitchen sink. Doesn't work. It's been anything but home sweet home. There was sewage coming up out of this drain pipe. After being outbid four times on other houses, Davis decided to forego the home inspection in order to guarantee she'd be able to move in. Wasn't probably the smartest idea, but if you look at the house, it's a pretty house. We just kind of got duped. We really got duped. What has been the worst part of this ordeal? Oh, my God. I, like, I cry every day. I literally cry every day. Every single day something happens. And Davis isn't alone. According to Bankrate, 64% of millennials, 45% of Gen X, and 33% of baby boomers regret their home purchases. For reasons like overpaying for their property, high maintenance costs, poor location, or wrong house size. A product of a highly competitive housing market during the pandemic, buyers are making offers sight unseen and waiving contingencies to win bidding wars. This house looked great online, but I should have actually seen, you know, seen it in person and really taken more time to decide on what kind of lifestyle we wanted to have when we came here. I have multiple raccoons. With everything from a raccoon infestation in the chimney to a septic tank that wasn't supposed to be there, Davis is fed up. I'm really just in a, I'm just stuck now. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this house. Everyone get inspections done, no matter what. And it should be against the law. It really should. It should be a requirement. Davis hopes future homeowners heed her cautionary tale so their dream homes don't become money pits. Stephanie Rule, NBC News. A former first couple is celebrating a major milestone this week. President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind have been married longer than any presidential couple, 75 years now. The pair wed on July 7, 1946. President Carter has said of all the decisions he's made in his life, the most important one was marrying Rosalind. When we come back, the environmental cost of digital currency will explain what Bitcoin mining is and why it's causing concern. Plus, music and meaning, imagining America the beautiful in a whole new way. A fireworks explosion forcing a Maryland beach to cancel its display tonight. It happened this morning in Ocean City. An employee was setting up for the holiday show. When the whole batch detonated, you can see beachgoers scattering for safety. One person suffered minor injuries. Well, have you heard of Bitcoin? It's virtual currency. I'm sure you have. But it's not paper bills or even metal coins. And yet there's growing concern about its potential environmental impact. NBC's Josh Letterman explains. On the shores of Seneca Lake, a retired power plant has reawakened, now pumping out half a billion pounds of CO2 a year. Not because this community needs electricity. Its main purpose? Powering thousands of computers 24-7. Mining Bitcoin, a virtual currency creating real-world risks. 
burn more fossil fuels in the middle of climate change to make fake money? It's, it's ludicrous. We were shown this server room where you need ear protection to shield the deafening roar. The Greenwich power plant shut down permanently in 2011 because there just wasn't the demand. But Bitcoin mining has given it new life. Now companies across the country are looking at doing the same thing. A private equity firm bought the dormant coal plant in 2014, converting it to natural gas, installing nearly 10,000 computers, and growing. Bitcoin is all digital. There's no bank, no government printing money. Instead, high-powered computers solve complex puzzles to verify Bitcoin transactions. When they do, they also earn Bitcoins. That's called Bitcoin mining, and it devours huge amounts of electricity, more than entire countries like Argentina and Sweden. We do not need to pollute this lake for Bitcoins. We don't all need Bitcoin. An intake pipe two football fields long cools the 70-year-old turbines with about 100 million gallons of water a day drawn from the lake. The superheated water is discharged into a river, raising fears about the fragile trout and harmful algae blooms. But CEO Jeff Kurtz says Greenwich is carbon neutral because it buys credits to offset its emissions. The plant's been operating for 80 years and the environmental impact of the plant has never been better. Kurt told us the plant does provide some power to the grid for local homes and businesses. But Greenwich has big plans to ramp up, to mine 26 times as much Bitcoin, taking over other old power plants. Why should all of this power be going into essentially making money from mining Bitcoin? Well, we think Bitcoin is here to stay, and, and we really see Greenwich as a model for what the rest of the industry can do. Greenwich tells investors it costs less than $3,000 to mine each Bitcoin. They sell now for close to 33000 a big environmental cost with a huge financial reward. Josh Letterman, NBC News, Seneca Lake, New York. Coming up next, a July 4th song we all know, but you've never heard it like this before. There's good news this July 4th about the power of music and how one artist is telling the story of her America through one of our nation's most popular patriotic songs. It's one of our nation's most iconic patriotic songs. America the Beautiful, Reimagined. Just saying, America the Beautiful, just mm, makes me cry. This song, so special for professional pianist Min Kwan, who moved to the U.S. from South Korea at just 13 years old. It's just really beautiful sentiment, and I think that's why <laughs> so many of us for generations, you know, uh, families from all over the world come here to, to make a new life. But at the height of the pandemic... And during a time of racial reckoning, Kwan saw this country becoming deeply divided. And she worried about the future for her two young daughters. When there was so much chaos, confusion, destruction, and literally death, I wanted to bring a new energy, new life, new force, uh, something positive. So she called on more than 70 composers for her project called America Beautiful, creating different versions to fit the many moods of America. This is our chance to come together and to show that, that diversity is something to celebrate. She's been performing them all across our nation, from fields 
to coastlines, even an underground cemetery. At Grace Church in Newark, New Jersey, where the song was first composed, Trevor Weston is creating a version based on his love of jazz. What did you think about joining this project? I look forward to kind of celebrating this melody that I thought was a beautiful melody and also her idea of kind of representing America and what makes it beautiful. Beautiful music Min hopes will bring us all closer together. Music teaches us the greatest lesson because you have to listen first in order to understand the language of someone else, you know, and we become stronger when we listen because that's the first step and then you create harmony. So inspiring to meet her. Min's cross-country performances are all available starting today on America-Beautiful.com. That is NBC Nightly News on this Sunday, Independence Day. I'm Kate Snow. For all of us here at NBC, have a great night. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.